Hey, it's Kanzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to The Baldcast, a production of John Kanzano's Bald Face Truth. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald faced truth. Well, it used to be in college football that programs would hire a coach who had been inside their program, who was familiar with them, had some familiarity. This was uh, not uncommon in uh, college athletics to see universities go with a known quantity but right now what we're seeing is a lot of risk taking in college athletics maybe it's because there's so much upside that it's okay to risk a little downside so to speak and we've seen it now with you know Arizona State Kenny Dillingham relatively unproven young head football coach youngest head football coach in in uh, college football 32 years old no proof of performance for Kenny Dillingham. And Kenny Dillingham will take over Arizona State. Who's he going to bring? Who's he going to surround himself with? I took a little dive on sort of the risk-taking we're seeing in college athletics by athletic directors. And, and, and frankly, there's one going on right now because the news out there with, with Deion Sanders confirming that Colorado offered him the job, not saying if he's taking it or not, which is pretty much not taking it when you do that. Uh, Deion Sanders coming out, and, you know, is he a risk at Colorado? Is he a calculated risk? Uh, I think that's a risk I would take if I'm Rick George, the athletic director at Colorado. Pac-12 Conference could have a whole bunch of turnover, not just with the head coaches, but with some coordinator, key coordinator positions, including an offensive coordinator position at Oregon, and uh, potentially – Kenny Dillingham at Arizona State, who left the offensive coordinator job at Oregon, taking some coaches with him. I'll be curious to see who Dillingham brings with him and what kind of quarterback he will bring with him. Now, you're not alone. If you've been wondering, if you're kind of studying the landscape of the Pac-12 and, frankly, the landscape in college football, you are probably noticed that it is a quarterback-centric game and that quarterbacks – more than any other position, can uh, jump into the transfer portal, get themselves a name-image-likeness deal, and come out on the other side as you know a game-changer for a lot of programs. I think there was a week earlier this season in the Pac-12 that 10 of the 12 schools in the Pac-12 were starting transfers at quarterback. 10 of 12 at one point. Oregon State sort of disrupted that by bringing Ben Gulbrinson in and letting him be there he was a uh you know a uh what do you call a homegrown quarterback is that what what we call it he was recruited by jonathan smith out of high school but other than dorian thompson robinson at ucla and tanner mckee at stanford it was a lot of revolving door cal had a transfer utah had a transfer colorado started a transfer for a while oregon was playing bo nix usc was playing caleb williams washington was playing michael Penix jr and I think that the quarterbacks that we're going to watch on Friday in the championship game, Cam Rising at Utah, transfer, Caleb Williams at USC, transfer, 
uh, might not be the best two transfer quarterbacks in the conference. The best transfer might be Michael Penix Jr. at Washington. And so I'm curious uh, if you have tuned into this. Some of you had. I got a note from Nick Cody, the former Oregon offensive lineman, a couple other listeners, some other coaches around college football going, you know what? It's not just about hiring a coach anymore. It's about hiring a coach who happens to have a relationship with a talented quarterback. And, you know, we used to see this manifest itself in ways in college football that were really interesting, like uh, a major college football program might give a talented quarterback's high school coach or seven-on-seven coach a job somewhere in the athletic department. Usually it wasn't as an assistant coach. It could be a support staff job. It could be some other job on campus. But it was seen as an inducement or enticement or recruiting advantage to bring somebody who had a relationship with that quarterback to your campus. Now the game has changed so much in college athletics. No longer is the recruiting coordinator just a part of your staff, that like a valuable member of your staff. The recruiting coordinator in a lot of cases – has been promoted to the offensive coordinator, has been promoted to the head coach, and we're seeing some younger faces that were normally reserved for the recruiting trail who are emerging as head coaches in college football. I thought about how much has changed. Mike Bellotti, Rich Brooks at Oregon, those were, those were coaches who kind of came up through the ranks, who valued continuity, who had assistants on their staff that, you know, Gary Campbell was on Oregon staff for like 32 years. Like, there was, a, there was continuity in that Oregon staff that was really unusual. Nick Aliotti, Steve Greatwood, uh, even uh, Jimmy Radcliffe, the strength and conditioning coach. There was, like, just this all this synergy and all this carryover from year to year. And now when we look at college athletics, what do we see? We see a revolving door. We see uh, Eric Morris going from Incarnate Word to the offensive coordinator job at Washington State. You see Kenny Dillingham relatively unproven as a play caller, go to Oregon, have some success with Bo Nix, who he helped bring to Oregon, then bolt for Arizona State, and I'm now wondering, you know, are any of the current Oregon quarterbacks going to jump in the portal now and end up at Arizona State? Or is it going to be an Oregon recruit that flips and ends up at Arizona State? And I'm kind of wondering, like, if the future of hiring in college athletics is going to be especially tied to the quarterback position. Do you know a quarterback? Have you recruited a quarterback? Are you comfortable with a quarterback? Are you the offensive coordinator who called plays and had a lot of success with a quarterback? Well, all of a sudden, I think you are uniquely qualified to bring uh, that talent to a university. And, hell, it, you make no mistake, Mario Cristobal was 27-47 and 47 as a head coach before he went to Oregon. Oregon didn't hire Mario Cristobal because they went, you know what, that guy can really coach. They didn't say that. I'm told by insiders in the Oregon program that the calculus changed when Phil Knight decided that there was urgency around he wanted to win. He was 80. He's 84 years old now. He's getting up there. He has really pivoted towards recruiting and the emphasis in recruiting being important. And so, uh, you know, understandably so. We've always said it was the Jimmys and the Joes, not the X's and the O's. But when you look at what is happening across college football, what you are seeing at the highest levels with millions of dollars involved is you are seeing universities like Arizona State who, you know, have traditionally been 
can we say, underachievers in the Pac-12 or maybe good team, not great team, good program, not great. Like, you know, they've played 500 ball over the last decade or so, and it's been disappointing. And we're seeing that kind of operation pivot, hand the keys to Kenny Dillingham, who's, again, relatively unproven, and for crying out loud, his introductory news conference was uh, an amazing spectacle. I don't know if you saw it. I'm a, I'll play some of the audio from that introductory news conference. It was uh, it was phenomenal. I felt like I was watching Tony Robbins. Like you know, on one hand, I appreciate the fact that uh, Kenny Dillingham's excited about being the head football coach at Arizona State. I also am aware he's 32. He's young, as I mentioned. Uh, but I also am kind of wondering, as I watched him do that introductory news conference, like for crying out loud, like. Is this an example of, uh, you know, like a Tony Robbins speech that is being given? Are those crocodile tears? Like, I didn't know what was going on with him. And I, and I, maybe I'll let you just kind of make up your mind for yourself. Did you guys see this? Uh, Peter, uh, you know, uh, also Stephen, Judah, did you guys see the Kenny Dillingham introductory news conference? Like from the moment he said hello or, in his words, home. Yeah, I did see it, uh, you know, just saying he's home and seeing the emotion – I kind was of, it authentic? I kind of bought it. I kind of bought it. Um, it seemed it seemed somewhat genuine to me. Um, it, and like you said, I think it's more the fact that he's a young guy, and maybe he wasn't expecting to be a head coach this early at a Pac-12 school. And I think that might be a lot of what the emotion is coming from. But it did seem somewhat genuinely authentic to me. I yeah. want to play this thing. Go ahead. What no, do you think? I feel the same way. Like I, I just think he's cut in a very intense cloth so he cares uh, a lot about arizona state uh i'm happy for him but yeah it's hard not to to smile a little bit uh seeing the way that he reacted oh, I, I, I was i was dying because on one hand it was evident that you know he he is excited to have the job but on the other hand i was kind of looking at kenny dillingham going does he realize he sounds pretty young as he's given this, this i'm home but First thing I want to say is I want to thank Dr. Crow, Ray Anderson, Gene Boyd, Marcus Williams. I mean, this is literally home. Home. Yes, sir. There's no emotion in football. <laughs> His wife's been at it all morning, so he had to catch up. <laughs> so I say that. Because this place is special. This state is special. The people in this room are special. I got guys in my wedding right there. <laughs> Sorry. Pretty emotional, right? It's just who I am. The one thing you're going to get from me. Okay, I am who I am. I am who I am. I'm gonna be the same person every single day I show up to work. I'm gonna be fired up to be here, fired up to be a Sun Devil. And this place, what this place needs to be successful, it's already been successful, we've seen it. The leadership from top to bottom is in line. That's why I'm here right now. The leadership from top to bottom is in line. We need this entire valley to come together. You wanna win at the highest level, you want to maximize this place? We need everybody in this room. Positive things. 
positive things. We need everybody in this room to get involved. If you don't know how to get involved, how do you get involved? This is one of the biggest metropolitan areas in the country. It's growing at a rapid rate. We need the valley behind us. We need the state behind us. We need butts in seats. We need everything that this valley has all in. Because I am all in. There's Kenny Dillingham I'm home. Uh, saying he's home. Uh, look, I got to be honest with you. There, there's part of me that goes, hey, I love the enthusiasm, but I hear a young coach there. And I kind of wonder if Kenny Dillingham would have been better off five years from now having this opportunity to go to his alma mater. I'm curious to see what he does. I think he's a really good play caller. That doesn't make him a CEO. It doesn't make him a head coach. That said, if I'm Arizona State, I hire the guy. Judy, you like the emotion. Kind of sounds like her. <laughs> 32. He's a you 32. play to win the game. <laughs> That's all I got. I am who I am. You know, I, <laughs> look, on the, on the face of it, it is cringeworthy. No doubt. Yeah. It's but cringy. It, it is does, cringy. It does not necessarily mean it's inauthentic either. Um, yeah. And I think that's a guy that slid into that seat with two things in mind. One, I really love being at Arizona State. I think that's a true sentiment that he has. I do think there was a secondary motive, and I think that motive was, how do I win this press conference? And so he mm. took that emotion and he cranked it up to 11. Hell, he cranked it up to 15. But there was that motive there. He's like, I feel like I got to win this press conference. People are giving me a side eye for my age that I left the Civil War on a plane after losing a 31-10 lead. I think I, that was a mistake by him, by the way. I don't think he should have done that. I think I think that hurts him. I know he was eager to go get this job, but leaving right after the game, the way the game went, I think he would have been better off flying out on Sunday. It, it was weird <laughs> that, like, uh, you know, the reporters were laughing and stuff. Like, he's crying, and you can hear laughing in the background. Like, they yeah. have no idea what to expect. So I, I think it was a kind of a bad look, uh, and it did show his young his young age. Okay, but, but but none of us none of us are football players. How do how will college football players react to that message? Speak for Yay yourself. Yay or nay? Do you want to play? <laughs> do you want to play for that guy? If you are a nineteen-year-old kid who can really play quarterback, do you want to play for that guy, or are you looking at looking at him going, you know, he's got guys in the wedding that are here? Like, like I don't like you know, I'm looking at him going, cringeworthy. But also appreciate the, the enthusiasm. I'll be curious to see how it works out. But will it translate to recruits? I mean, I think yes, because you can look at what Bo Nix did this year, and that's all he has to say is, look what I did with Bo Nix. This is a guy that Auburn didn't want anymore. I took him to be almost a Heisman candidate. So, yeah, like yeah, that stuff doesn't work for me. The emotional stuff doesn't work on me. But I do think if I was a quarterback, I'd still – want to hear him out because he did special things with quarterbacks. Yeah, that's the thing, though, too. Like, recruiting is one thing. Winning football games is another. And there is a correlation between strong recruiting and winning, but it's not the only thing. Like, right. you know, we've how many times have we seen Oregon bring in a top class now and leave a little meat on the bone for one reason or another? Yeah. So I expect the same thing from uh, from Kenneth down there. And I, I also think he's probably trying to motivate the NIL collective they have down there. John, you've done reporting on that group. Haven't we yeah. had some Sun of Devil, those? Sun Angels, yeah. Yes. Yeah, Sun probably. Angels, yeah. I mean, yeah. The, the whole thing, we need you, we need the Valley. Yeah. I was I was thinking about that as he's doing the speech. Like, he's selling Michael Crow, his university president, uh, who is the biggest honk in the land down there, on the idea that, hey, we're going to get buy-in from everybody, and I'm going to get buy-in because I'm the local guy, and people like the local guys. Like, I, you know, I was in Fresno when Jerry Tarkanian came home. He was a Valley kid, 
And the whole, you know, half the reason why Fresno State took a flyer on Jerry Tarkanian late in his career was they wanted to build the Save Mart Center. And the Armenian community, the farmers in that Central Valley, they love Tark. Like, but can Kenny Dillingham at 32, will he resonate with the, uh, you know, the snow angels who are down there in Arizona who are getting, you know, who are all retirees? I don't know. I felt like I was listening to young Tony Robbins during that speech. <laughs> like it was, you know, but I also, look, I like Kenny Dillingham. I know him. I, you know, I've talked to him a few times this season. He told me that Arizona State was his dream job after the Cal game. He said, "Don't please don't put that out. I don't want Oregon fans to think, but, but that's my dream job if I ever got it. And, you know, and he said that in the news conference. Later he went on, he said, this is my dream job. So I think there was part of what he was doing that was authentic and emotional. But I also kind of wondered, like, is he showing his age up there? Like, this is a young guy showing his age. Uh, let's see how he how he uh, marinates in the next few months at Arizona State. I want to talk about the Rose Bowl next. Is the Rose Bowl overplaying its hand? Is it holding up the playoff? We'll talk about it. Leave it here. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. The Rose Bowl is the granddaddy of them all. We know that. Like, I love the Rose Bowl. You love the Rose Bowl. We all know the Rose Bowl. 106-year-old, uh, you know, game that is based in Pasadena, California, uh, tethered to the Rose Parade, traditionally uh, featuring the Big Ten uh, champion against the Pac-12 champion. And this year uh, could be the last year that the Rose Bowl has sort of that traditional Big Ten, Pac-12 uh, matchup. It could be Washington against Ohio State. It could be USC against Ohio State. Those are the two most likely outcomes, I think. But uh, a story written by Ross Dellinger of Sports Illustrated outlines the idea or the, compl the complexity of the Rose Bowl's fit within the expanded playoff. There's supposed to be a resolution or a final decision this week on the Rose Bowl. A lot of people, when I do my Weekly mailbag at johnconzano.com have asked me over the years or over the months uh, about, you know, the, the Rose Bowl's role in this expanded playoff. I've got that question multiple times, and I have often said, hey, it's to be determined, it's to be determined. Well, now we know it's to be determined. The Rose Bowl gave a, a proposal to the college football playoff that uh, it wants to serve as a semifinal game in the expanded 12-team playoff two out of every three years. Now, the other bowls, the Sugar Bowl, the Orange Bowl, the Fiesta Bowl, the Peach Bowl, the Cotton Bowl, all five of those six bowls went all in saying, look, we will uh, support amending the contract to expand early, but the problem is that the CFP, the college football playoff officials, they need unanimous agreement to expand to 12 teams. So, they can't make any guarantee unless they have unanimous agreement. And the Rose Bowl has been holding them up. The Rose Bowl initially said, look, we want to be a semifinal game or we want to be nothing. So two out of every three years. And in that third year where they're not a semifinal, the Rose Bowl would like to retain its Big 12, or excuse me, Big 10, Pac-12 traditional bowl game where they would take the two highest ranked teams not playing in the playoff 
and put them in that game and kind of say, hey, look, we're the granddaddy. We're still the granddaddy. Um, to me, that's a little bit hokey pokey. Like you are the Rose Bowl, but you're not the Rose Bowl two out of three years. So uh, apparently the Rose Bowl at first uh, gave that uh, requirement, then backed off of it. So the latest proposal relinquishes their window saying that they want to exclusively be played on January 1. And, uh, you know, and apparently the bowl officials did not like, the other bowl officials and presidents and commissioners did not like that demand from the Rose Bowl. So in a lot of ways right now, uh, this week we're supposed to get resolution. There is supposed to be, you know, some compromise that happens here. But the Rose Bowl is definitely, I can tell you this, definitely at risk of impacting the Pac-12 and its own sort of position in the future playoff. Uh, because if they continue to delay the expansion, I kind of think that the other parties are going to go to hell with the Rose Bowl, cut them out, we'll get a new bowl game in there. And one of the proposals is that they would create a brand-new bowl game and put it at SoFi Stadium. Another proposal says, hey, let's create a brand-new bowl game and put it in Vegas. Um, a lot of you know, People are saying, look, let's replace it with something on the you know, western part of the United States. Um, and, you know, by the way, SoFi Stadium will have this year's national championship game, so it's not like that stadium hasn't been party to some pretty big games. But this is a really interesting uh, dilemma because the Rose Bowl, I guess, is trying to do what's best for the Rose Bowl. And we always say do what's best for yourself in these things. But I kind of think the Rose Bowl is hosing all of college football if it doesn't sort of do what all the other bowls have done and said, look, we're okay losing a little tradition to be included here. And it's fine. If you don't want to be part of the playoff, it's fine. Just say, hey, we're going to hold our game on January 1. We're always going to take a Big Ten against a Pac-12. Maybe it'll be the fourth place against the fourth place, but that's what we're going to do. Uh, but what the Rose Bowl can't do is hold this up any longer. They have to agree to terms this week. Speaking of terms, Trent Bray, defensive coordinator, Oregon State, got a contract extension from the Beavers. He joins us next. I want you here for it. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Well, I thought it was a remarkable football game on Saturday. Research Stadium is Oregon State won 38-34, beating Oregon. Uh, terrific comeback, a lot of resilience. Uh, Trent Bray, the defensive coordinator at Oregon State, is joining us. He has been uh, rewarded with a contract extension. Here he is. What was it like to coach in that game? Uh, it was uh, all sorts of emotions, uh, frustration to uh, joy <laughs> to just uh, – it, it was fun. It was fun to see those guys keep fighting when things didn't look good and, and, and end up making the plays we needed to to win at the end. Help us out here because I know, you know, your guy likes to coach from the field. Some coordinators are in the box. But what did you see happening, first of all, from your defensive standpoint, as the game sort of turned? What was it that you felt you guys were doing well or maybe Oregon wasn't, wasn't capitalizing on? Uh, well, we made a we made a couple uh, schematic adjustments to how they were attacking us, and then it, it really was we talked about it, you know, on the sideline of hey, if right now we just we're doing too many things that self-inflicted wounds, 
And if we just do our work and we're on our work, then, then we're, this game's going to end the way we want it to. And, and the guys did an unbelievable job buying in and, and going out and getting it done. Yeah, it's interesting that, you know, you talk about schematic changes. I noticed, you know, Oregon had gone like five wide at one point. They were spreading you guys out. Uh, was that something you had seen them do earlier in the year, or was that something a little new? That They did a lot against Utah. Um, and then, you know, they that's kind of – that was kind of what they were trying. They were trying to find something on offense, and they had a little bit of success with it, so they stuck with it for, for a little bit there, yeah. You guys had a couple of late passes that, you know, you got, you just tipped away. or It looked like, mm-hmm. oh, if, if you don't get a finger on it, what does it mean when you got some experienced guys in the secondary who have been there and played a lot of reps? Yeah, it, it's huge because those, you I mean, you look at third down and those fourth downs, I mean, it, it, guys experience. And, and ability to make our guys to make those plays in those crucial moments was the game. Um, and, and we kind of talked about, you know, those third, fourth down situations, you know, that they were the difference in the Washington game not going our way. So it was a big point of emphasis for us that we got to get off the field on third down, and, and that's going to be the deciding factor in this game. It had to be really fun. I noticed your fans, I mean, they were jumping over the railing at the end of the game. The players, there was a lot of emotion. As a coach on the field, when you see a team fight through some adversity, may, maybe some bad calls, definitely some bad calls, some adversity, uh, an opponent that is, you know, a credible opponent, what does that feel like as a coach? It's 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 fun to see. It's it's fun to watch. Uh, you know the the players and the, really just the joy that they have, and then all the hard work that they put in the season, um, then that week, and then to go out there and and have that game kind of end the way it did for us was was fun to watch them. Trent Bray with us, Oregon State's defensive coordinator. Uh, you, you know, you 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 play at, at Oregon State. You come up as a position coach. You're promoted to coordinator now. You're extended uh, with the, with the additional years on the contract. Um, you know, this coaching staff has got continuity. How much how much of an advantage does that give you guys when you've got Jim Mahalchek and Jonathan and you and Brian Lindgren and you look around and it's there's just a lot of continuity that you don't see anymore on some of the staffs within the conference? Yeah, I, I think it's a great thing. I think it's a great thing for our players. Um, I think it's you just see it so much. It's hard every year there's a new position coach or a new coordinator or a new this or that. Uh, I think it's hard for those guys. Um, so I think – we view ourselves as a developmental program. We're going to get guys in here and develop them. And I think that's what we saw on the field. A lot of guys that have been here for a long time that have played a lot of football for us and have gotten better and better every year and, and kind of all put it together this year. Give us an idea as you sort of forecast into next season. I know there's a bowl game, but I'm always looking at your guys and I'm going, okay, where are the needs? Um, you know, you're out recruiting. You know what you have coming in. Uh, what position groups in particular Will it be important to get new talent and guys that go to work, you know, neck into next spring and next fall? Yeah, uh, I mean, obviously we're we're going to lose some some defensive backs that that have been really good players for us. Um, but we, we like we really like our young guys that are here, and then we're going to go out and look to uh, to kind of fill fill some holes with, with some guy some older guys. But uh, but really encouraged by you know, the last couple classes and the freshmen and sophomores that we already got on our team. So feel good about the pl- the players that we have kind of moving up in the ranks after this year. Jack Coletto and Jaden Grant. I want to talk about those two guys because you see them a lot on defense. What does Coletto mean, first of all, in the middle of that defense for you? 
Uh, his ability to, to do so many things. Um, you know, he's one of our better special teams player. He's a, he's a really good linebacker for us. And then he's, you know, he's very productive on the offensive end. So it just, uh, yeah, I've, I've never been around a guy like that, that, that not only can handle it mentally, but can do it physically. So it's impressive to, to see him do the stuff he does. I was a little worried we weren't going to see Jaden Grant after, you know, his, his troubles and the injury, yeah. but he got there on the field. What, what has he meant for your defense? He, he's been uh, huge for us. Uh, his leadership, um, his, his ability to just communicate and, and really run the show back there, you know, puts a lot of guys at ease. That's, you know, especially early in the year as, as Ryan Cooper was, you know, playing in his first couple games, um, his ability to communicate and be on the same page you know, with, with our nickel position was, was huge. And, and so, and then he's just a really good football player. I mean, he made some plays on Saturday that, that were big time for us winning that game. You know, the fourth down stop down here on the 20. I mean, that was just him being a smart football player and, and making that play. It was, it was impressive. Were you surprised they went fourth down inside their 30 in that situation? Or well, as a D coordinator, when you see them going for it, what are you thinking? Uh, I'm not. I wasn't really surprised. I think a lot of offenses, fourth and one, is kind of a go um, for a lot of teams now. Um, and then I, I can't remember where exactly if that was after a punt had been blocked, or I think they were having some trouble on the yep. team, so it might have yep. been safer for them to do that. So I, I wasn't totally surprised by that. I was surprised Nick's kept the ball given his lack of mobility. And I thought when Jaden made the tackle, I said, "That's a guy who's been in college for a hundred years. Like you're not fooling that guy." <laughs> in that situation uh, as I watch that unfold. Um, can I ask you to put your your uh, your offensive cap on for a second? Because you guys on the offensive side of the ball, everybody in the stadium knew you were running the ball on offense. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you have 15 runs in the fourth quarter, no passes. You, you beat them 21 to 3. What was happening mm-hmm. offensively as you were watching the offense on the field during the fourth quarter? I, I, yeah, I, I mean, I, I liked it. Um, uh, but uh, I, I just saw our offensive line um, moving those guys and creating seams. And our, our, you know, we got really good running backs, and and they did a great job of running, running hard. All, you know, all those guys run extremely hard. Um, so I, I thought it was just the, really the, the strength of our team, the offensive line and running back positions. You know, showing up in those big moments. So I, it was fun to watch them them work like that. It turned into rugby at the end. I just thought, I thought, you know, yeah. and I looked at your guys, and it just had this feel that your guys had had enough, and you weren't losing that game. When you were getting down in on that last score, I thought, there's no way they're not scoring here. It'll just be a matter of can Trent Bray's defense stop Oregon on the ensuing drive, and mm-hmm. your defense had to come up big. Tell us, take us through sort of the, you know, that sequence at the end where Oregon is threatening to to steal the game back. Yeah, it was just, uh, you know, they converted on a third and long, you know, early in the drive, which, um, you know, they, they did a nice job throwing catch. And then, uh, you know, they got they got down there, a couple penalties got them down there. And then, yeah, it was first and five on the five. And and I thought our guys just, I mean, yeah, what can you say? They they, they knew the what the moment was about, and they went out and they weren't going to be denied. And then they made just four great plays in a row. I mean, it, it was just impressive to, to watch and then watch on film the next day. You know, it, it was it was great, Trent. Uh, it's it's been fun to watch Jonathan grow as a head coach. You've seen this. You've been there. What makes Jonathan Smith good? 
I, I think there's a lot of things. Um, I think number one, just uh, you know, he, he's very consistent um, in his communication um, and how he operates. Um, he's a great communicator and connector with with our players. I think they believe in him and he believes in them. I mean, I think whenever you have that with a group of young people that 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 believe in each other and believe in the guy in the leadership role, uh, great things can happen. I think that's probably his greatest quality is his leadership, you know, of, of young people. I saw Dennis Erickson on the sideline. What, what does it mean to you when you see, you look up and you see a guy like that who's been such an important part of what has been built, he and Mike Riley, really? Uh, you see him there. He told me before the game, he said, just you watch. He said, it, it's it's his time. And he was talking about Jonathan. And mm-hmm. Dennis Erickson ended up being right. Like, you know, he, he, what, what's that mean to you to see Erickson there? It was great. It was great. And uh, Coach Erickson's been back a couple times, and it's just been fun to see him. Um, obviously, he's got a lot of history with this place and then with us. I mean, Coach Mahalchek played for him and coached with him. I did as well. And, and Coach, Coach Smith played for him. So it was just great to see him and him. Being around is is just fun. That you know where we're kind of moving the program and kind of back to you know kind of what he had got started way back in the 2000s and got this place back on the map. Getting it back to that point is has been fun to do. All right, so we've watched coaching change with transfer portal, NIL, all this stuff that's in, and we're watching the the recruiting guy now become the head coach in a lot of places. Um, your place is different. Like Jonathan's, a, he's a teacher. He's a coach. He's got. Mm-hmm. guy's been there. Um, what do you make of the landscape of college football and kind of the direction that it's going? And and how do you uh, how do you adapt as a coach even? Because you know part of your job obviously is recruiting and teaching, but now you have a whole bunch of other things that are involved in getting players to campus and keeping them there. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, the the biggest thing with the, the keeping the guys here is you know. You hope that as their experience here and the way they're treated and uh, and the, the way they feel about coming to work every day is, is the reason that they want to continue to be here. Because you're absolutely right. Our guys are getting recruited off teams by other teams. There's no question about it. Um, so, yeah, that makes it tough. Um, but you, you just got that, – that's the landscape. And, and you got to be aggressive when you're going to get guys out there and in recruiting and in the portal as well. And you know, and just keep developing the guys that are on your team. And, yeah, I, I think that's kind of how you ha- you're going to have to adapt because there's, there's not much else you can do. But, but keep, keep your head down, keep working, and, and you feel good about the guys you do take because I think that's a big part of it. You don't, gotta, you don't have to, you know, always be right, um, but you've got to make sure that the guys that you bring into your place are the right type of guy and the right type of minded guy, and we can be successful here. Pat Casey told me once, I, I said to him, you know, he was playing North Carolina in Omaha for the College World Series, and I said, you know, they have better talent. And he said, I don't need all the good players. I just need some of them. And I, it kind of echoes yeah. what you're saying. Like you want the right players and you need enough yeah. talent, of course, but you don't necessarily want uh, guys that don't fit your culture or fit your team. Um, yeah. I want to ask your opinion on this because, you know, you've seen Caleb Williams, you've seen Michael Penix Jr., and you know, all the players in, in this conference, which guy is the most difficult to game plan for? Or which player in this conference? And it might not be one of them. Like, if, we're, if I'm asking you, Trent Bray, uh, you know, give me give me who you think the best offensive player in the conference is. Who comes to mind? Oh, I think Caleb and uh, Penix at Washington are the two that pop out right away. Um, you know, obviously both those teams and then 
the, the, the thing that's unique about this conference, especially at the skill position, there's just so much talent. And then this year the quarterback play in this conference was the best it's been in a long, long time. Um, so it, it, every week was extremely, you know, was difficult to, to game plan for because there were so many threats and so many weapons. And, and that's why I, I think our coaching staff did a great job of, of getting our guys ready to play. And then the players, you know, really bought in and locked in the, every week what we were trying to get done, what we had to stop. And they, and they did an excellent job doing that. Did you guys do a better job against Caleb Williams or Penix in your mind when you look back at those two games? I would say Caleb Williams. Um, I thought we were more disruptive to him probably than than Penix. Um, if when I look back on it, and but uh, yeah, I'd probably say that. Yeah, you guys gave. I mean, you gave him fits, and and I had yeah. you know they looked. I left that game going. I think USC is going to lose multiple games, and then as the season wore on, I went. You know, I think Oregon State might just be really good on defense. When did you figure out you guys were good on defense? You know, I I knew. You know, when we left spring ball, um, I, I felt really good about this group. Um, and in a lot of it, not, not just their talent ability, but they, the way they just bought into what we wanted to get done. And when you got that kind of extreme buy-in um, from your players and, and from the coaches and from everyone in this program, uh, you just had a feeling like, okay, this is going to be the year we're going to step it up on defense and, and be a reason that we win ball games. And, um, so, yeah, I, I felt extremely confident for a long time with this group. All right. Uh, Coach, before I cut you loose, uh, you know, we know we see you guys celebrate a win, and then I know pretty quickly it becomes about recruiting and then a bowl game. And, you know, have you had a chance to really absorb the season, a nine-win nine season? And, you know, given where you guys were just three or four or five years ago, you know, we had a kid call in yesterday on the show who's been a student at Oregon State for five years. And – he was beside himself going, I can't believe I'm leaving school and my team won nine games because you guys were a two-win team when he, when he was a freshman. And you, yeah. you've done that for a student body. You've made, you know, you've made it, you've, you've brought some joy to the student body, but do you get a chance to enjoy it or does it very quickly turn into recruiting time and then, you know, what, what happens next? Yeah, there, there's not much time to enjoy it, usually about, a couple hours after the game and then you're either moving on to the next opponent or now you're moving into to the recruiting and, and waiting to see who you got a game plan for in the bowl game. Um, but I, I did have, I had my family here, my dad here uh, over the weekend for the game. And, and I did talk to him and he kind of put in perspective for me about, you know, kind of this season and where we've come and all that. So there was a little bit of that after the game and yeah, very proud of, of what these, these guys have done here. Yeah. You're a long way from the Hamburg sea devils. Uh, you know, playing football, uh, you you, uh, you you deserve the extension. Congrats on that, and you know, really nice season, regular season. Can't wait to see what you guys do next. I appreciate that. All right, Trent Bray, thank you. Uh, there's Trent Bray, defensive coordinator, Oregon State. Uh, really remarkable building. You know, it isn't it isn't like Oregon State turned it around from two and ten to nine and three in one season. Like if you know, if you want to really study how a program can make steady progress, look at Oregon State over the last four seasons. Jonathan Smith is getting a ton of credit nationally, I think, and deservedly so, for being the head coach who has engineered this turnaround. He has taken a program that, you know, Gary Anderson quit. He left. 
He took off. He said, you can't win here. In fact, I don't think you can win here so badly that I'm going to give back $17 million. I'm out of here. I don't want to coach for another day. He left, and 2-10 and happened in Jonathan Smith's first season. I remember him coming on the show. He was just talking about, we want to be competitive. We want to get in games. Now what are they doing? They're winning nine games. And, and frankly, look, apologies to Ben Gulbrinson, Chance Nolan, who, you know, tried. But if Oregon State had a quarterback, I kind of think Oregon State would have been 11-1. and one. Like, they don't lose to USC if they've got a quarterback who doesn't throw four picks, who can make a couple plays. They don't, they don't go and lose at Washington uh, the way the defense played, 24-21. They don't lose that game with a quarterback. Uh, really limited. I think Tyson Alger, the I-5 corridor, wrote it best. He said at Oregon State, the quarterback was a garnish on the plate. I mean, that's, I mean, that's beautiful. It was parsley. And I mean that with all due respect, but Ben Gulbertson threw for 60 yards, did not complete a pass or throw a pass in the fourth quarter, and Oregon State beat Oregon in the rivalry game. As long as Jim Mahalchek sticks around as the run game coordinator and Brian Lindgren's calling the plays and Trent Bray is calling the defense and Jonathan Smith's the coach, like you have to feel really encouraged with Oregon State's ability here to sustain the success they've built. And can't wait to see what they do next. Are they a playoff team next year, two years from now? If the playoff expands, uh, you know, we're going to find out here coming up in about 10 minutes where Oregon State is in the college football playoff rankings. Where are they going to jump to? Stephen, you have a sense on where Oregon State lands in the newest, you know, rankings that come out. All I hope is they're ahead of Oregon because in the AP poll, they have the same record and they're behind Oregon after beating mm. them. I just want to see them ahead of Oregon. But it seems like they'll be around 15, 14, something like that. I think it's going to be really interesting to see. Stay tuned. We'll update you. We'll give it to you in real time. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Well, we got the Pac-12 championship game coming up Friday. USC as the one seed. Utah as the two seed. Uh, the conference commissioner, George Klyovkov, and the football supervisor, Merton Hanks, will be conducting a video news conference on Thursday. Typically, they do it in person in Vegas. Don't know why they're not doing it in person. I'll be in Vegas for uh, the championship game to cover it. You can read me at johnconzano.com. I got a lot of things to write this week. But, um, guys, what do we need to be asking George Klyovkov and Merton Hanks on Thursday? Uh, I put that out on Twitter. I put it out and said, hey, what should I ask? And a lot of the, the, lot of the followers that I have, this is unscientific, but it's still interesting to me, uh, want me to ask them about officiating. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a big one. There's been a lot of mistakes this season, and it's not just this season. It's in seasons past about the officiating. I think that is one of the main things, um, you know, outside of just the whole realignment stuff, you know, on the field, I do want to know about the officiating because that has been a problem, and even in that Civil War game, uh, you know, that Oregon State call on, what was it, third and one, I mean, yep. they got called back. I mean, that was, I thought that was clearly a first down, got called back. Ducks ended up getting a stop. 
Like, the, it seems like there's problems that shouldn't be happening on the field, and it's happening all the time. <laughs> the 4th uh, and 13 that Bo Nix got sacked on by uh, Rawls, 52. Yep. Uh, definitely, like, pulled his neck, you know, <laughs> as he sacked him. And I kind of liked the no call because I like that kind of football violence yep. in a way, right? But Bo Nix was, like, heated, hopping mad. And I didn't blame him. I, I frankly thought a penalty uh, was going to be called there, and it wasn't. But it's just that that perception, you know, with the officials is out there. Is it? Can we objectify, like, qualitatively or quantitatively, I guess, that Pac-12 officiating is, in fact, without a question, worse than any other Power 5 conference? I It's anecdotal. It's going to be. And, you know, like I, I think, you know, the Pac-12 tries to tell me, Bad calls happen all the time. Like They don't go on the record with it, but the Pac-12 officials who talk to me, and I talk to them at games, will come up to me and go, hey, you're being too hard on us. But I've had Pac-12 officials also bend my ear when I'm on the sideline before a game. I've had several referees come over and say, hey, you're being mean to us uh, in print. And I'll go, you know, you guys are struggling out here. And they'll go, hey, you know what's happening? And then they tell me. And they say, look, we don't have a system. The guys, the crews are all hodgepodge. It's... You know, so I think there's, I think it is a bigger problem, but the perception, the fact that there's a perception problem, Pac-12 should pay attention to that. Even if it's perception, you've got to fix that if you're George Klyovkov. You have to. We'll talk more about it. Plus, the rankings are coming out. Stay tuned. B-F-F-T. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald faced truth. We'll give it some uh, rankings, some fresh rankings in the college football playoff. We'll have them for you live here, just moments away. As they are coming out, we'll get it in real time. Where's Oregon State going to end up? Where's Oregon going to end up? Where's USC going to be? Is it possible USC doesn't need to win? That's right, I said it. Is it possible they don't need to win on Friday against Utah to make the playoff? I've heard it surmised that there's, you know, there's a possibility that they could make the playoff with, with a loss back into the thing so to speak. Do you think Georgia is going to be number one or is Michigan going to bounce them? I think Georgia has to be one. Like, to me, like, I get it. Like, the committee might just say, hey, Michigan's win over Ohio State is, we want to reward that, but, and then the, and then they'll wait till next week when Georgia wins the SEC championship and then they'll bounce Georgia back in front. But I, I, I think Georgia beats anybody right now don't you think i agree i think georgia's the best team in the nation but i do think michigan will be the number one team in the rankings and then that way if crazy things happen they can keep georgia two, put alabama four and there doesn't have to be a georgia alabama game mm, there you go conspiracies conspiracy <laughs> conspiracies going on uh, uh, uh question go ahead. how in the world can usc make the playoff with two losses well let's see what these rankings tell us if USC, let's say, let's just say that the right, I don't have it in front of me, but the, the right combinations of things. Dan Wetzel wrote a column where he said, he sort of laid out the idea that, you know, if you had TCU losing the Big 12 championship game, if you had, uh, you know, Georgia LSU uh, 
you know, LSU has another loss, that it doesn't matter what USC does Purdue, uh, against Purdue Utah. Purdue beats Michigan. Yeah, Purdue, yeah, Purdue beats Michigan. They think there's a combination of things that could happen this weekend coming up that could make it really ugly. All right, the rankings are coming out. Uh, we'll come back to that in a second here. Uh, the, they're starting at the bottom. Uh, you have uh, Notre Dame at 21, UCF at 22, Carolina at 23, Mississippi State at 24, uh, North Carolina State at 25, but nobody cares about any of that. We're waiting to see where the Pac-12 teams are, and in particular waiting to see where Oregon State ends up and Oregon ends up in the latest poll. And keep an eye on Washington because if there is a USC championship in the Pac-12 championship game on Friday, it's uh, likely that the Rose Bowl would take the next highest-ranked team as the Rose Bowl representative from the Pac-12 conference. Will Utah be in front of Washington? Oregon's going to be at 16. Guess what, guys? The Beavers are going to be in front of the Ducks. Good. That's, that's The only thing I really wanted out of this was that to happen because I saw that in AP poll, and I went straight to Jude, and I complained about it. Like, Oregon at 16, <laughs> UCLA at 17. Uh <laughs> Uh, that's gonna that's that's gonna be really interesting uh, as Oregon State is going to be in front of uh, Oregon when the playoff committee does this. Oregon drops seven spots after the loss to Oregon State. Let's see where they put the Ducks. Uh, see what they put the Beavers relative to the Ducks as uh, they will soon give us uh, the next batch, the next five or so. Do you think Oregon State's going to be at 15? It's going to be that tight. I kind of suspect that it will be. They have grouped those Pac-12 teams uh, very closely together. They have sort of clustered them as they per, as they went forward. Oregon State is at 15. Washington's at 12. Utah's at 11. So there you have it. Uh, Utah is 11, and uh, and uh, Washington at 12. So if Utah loses to USC. Uh, it sets up Washington to leapfrog them and uh, be the highest-ranked Pac-12 team. So I think a lot of people are uh, happy about that if you are a Washington fan. Is that a a for sure, or is there a chance that the Rose Bowl can pick or they can State. pick whoever they could. Or the Rose Bowl can pick whoever. Do you do you think there's any chance that they would ever pick Oregon State over Washington? I I don't think so. Because I it, don't either. <laughs> I don't. And plus, they head to head, they beat them. So I think, you know, there's I think, you know, I think that probably ends that debate in the eyes of the Rose Bowl. But the Rose Bowl, under their cluster mentality, they can take whoever they can take whoever they want. And it just sort of underscores that that Washington, Oregon State game was a huge football game because you'd be looking at, you know, Washington has 10 wins. Oregon State has nine. Washington is ranked in front of Oregon State. They're 12. Oregon State's 15. But good on the Beavers for being a top 15 team in, in, you know, in this round of the college football playoff rankings, now we have to wait and see where does USC end up in the rankings. So it is wild know. to think now in hindsight that game on that Friday night up in Washington could be for a Rose Bowl. Like that's yep. how big that game was, and it came right down to the wire. That's how close Oregon State was this year to getting to the Rose Bowl, man. That, that, that's wild. Yep, there it is. Uh, any big surprises yet? No, I don't think anything crazy. Waiting to see what's happening here at the top. Number ten will be Kansas State. So the rankings come out, and the big thing we're going to be watching in the top four or five is what happens to Ohio State after the loss to Michigan, and where does uh, USC rank relative to the top four? USC was penalized uh, just a week ago uh, after the win over UCLA. You know, didn't see enough defense. The committee said 
did they see enough in the win over Notre Dame? Pretty good win for USC. Let's see what happened here. Nine is Clemson as uh, the rankings come out here. And I'm going to get your live reaction to this. I got a reaction about yeah. Clemson here. Yeah. I, for Oregon to fall seven spots when they lose on the road to Oregon State and Clemson yeah. to fall one spot when they lost at home to South Carolina is yeah. insane. Like, that just shows, like, how this isn't a true playoff, and they do just favor certain teams. Well, they do. And it, and it's – and it, look, it's not a playoff. It's an invitational tournament. Like, you know, nobody's – Nobody's earning their way into this thing. They're being selected. So I, I, I keep saying that, and I hope people keep saying it themselves. Penn State, it's eight at number eight. Man, are they dragging this out. Uh, they'll probably go to commercial break before they before – the, are they going to give us one, two now and then give us the rest? <laughs> no, they'll probably give us seven and then break and then give us the mm. top six yeah. or something like that. Yeah. You know, they produce – it's TV, baby. Well, there you have it. But Oregon State at number 15, Oregon at uh, number 16. Is that, does, uh, does 15 sound about right for Oregon State, you think, right now, John? I think so, because we said it last week, right? Uh, we we said that I would put them against anybody in, in, you know, 18 or below. And I think they're kind of finding their, uh, you know, re- they're finding their spot. They're, you know, and, and Oregon... At at 16, look, there's no shame in that. Like, Oregon didn't get it done. They lost the game. And so I think for people who are upset about that, I think some people will be upset, and they'll say, hey, look, it was Bo Nix. He was hurt. You you still have to win the game. So uh, there you go. I just, I mean, just big picture. We're going to enter the month of December with the Oregon State Beavers higher than the Oregon Ducks in the college mm-hmm. football freaking playoff. That's yeah. That is awesome. I mean, I'm not a beaver homer. I'm not a duck homer. That's insane. Like, three weeks ago when the Ducks are leaving Boulder, ass-kicking Colorado, we're talking mm-hmm. about this team going to the playoff. Yeah. You flip the calendar three weeks later, the beavers are higher than them. Amazing. And I don't it, – look, I think – well, you know, it's really interesting to me to kind of – I noted on yesterday's show we had more beaver fans call in than typical. And you can tell that the Beaver fan base was energized by the win over Oregon. And it's interesting to me to look, guys, you know, both of these teams are 9-3. and three, And I said it yesterday, one of them is ready to throw a parade in Corvallis. And the other one is going, this season's a waste, and they're questioning the head coach. Like, it's just, it's expectation driven. And I kind of will remind, like, I, I just want to remind Oregon State fans as they're watching the Oregon fans, Look, you can become a victim to your own success if you don't kind of keep your feet on the ground. And I think Oregon fans got swept up in sort of the hysteria of, are they a playoff team? Didn't we find out in week one that Oregon probably wasn't a playoff team with the way that Georgia handled Oregon? Like, I I was on the fence all the last six weeks going, would it be better if Oregon just went to the Rose Bowl? Would it be better than going to the playoff and playing Georgia again? No, they should play the best. Let's see where they are. At no time did I think Oregon could go into the playoff and beat, you know, the one seed if they were the four seed. All right, they're going to count down the uh, six. Alabama's at six. Tennessee was at seven, yeah. Tennessee was at seven. Where's USC going to be? Five or four? Uh, Got to be four. I think they're going to be four. I think they're going to be five so that beating Utah would get them in. 
Let's see where they Ohio, fall. Ohio State at four. Ohio State at four. USC at five is good. I think Ohio yes. State will be at five. In, in USC at four. I changed. I'm with Judah because Ohio State beat Penn State, who is eight in these rankings. So I think but they stay in over, at four. That win over Notre Dame. I think they. I think they're gonna. You're gonna see a reward for it. Let's see. A win versus a loss. Let's see what happens to Ohio State. Who will be fifth? Ohio State's at five. I think USC is going to be number four. You guys were right. They're going to be <laughs> I in. Right. <laughs> Fight on. Fight on's going to be there. At it four, is. I think. Uh, really interesting. I'm ready to tweet it. There it should is. Should I yeah. just tweet it, or should you I should've... wait? You're good. Yeah, USC. Should four. I tweet USC is number four? You can't. No, I'm waiting to see it. I don't want to be that jackass who jumped the gun. And there's USC at four. You know so what? There it is. Crazy cold takes there. <laughs> Have you ever to, been on freezing cold takes? I'm sh- no, but if you're in this business long enough, you're gonna say something. <laughs> you're gonna tweet something or say something that's gonna be wrong. Like people always go, "Oh, you said you picked this game." Well, of course, if I was 100, percent I would. I wouldn't be writing a column and being on radio. Like I'd be in Vegas with a 1-900 number. The like you know, Christian horny toads are at three. There you go. So USC at four, it gets really interesting here. I, I actually don't think they stay at four if they lose to Utah. But there is a scenario where a certain uh, combination of things would happen that would put them there. And it would be ugly if, you know, you had you had everybody in the top four lose and, and some of the teams below them lose. Because right now you have Georgia one. You need Georgia to win. Okay. You need Georgia to win. You need Michigan. Uh, what would happen if, if Michigan lost in the Big Ten championship game? They stay in the top four? Yeah, because they beat Ohio State. Like, you couldn't put Ohio State mm-hmm. over them. No. And if TCU loses, they out of the top four? Yeah, they yeah. beat out just because they, they're not going to get respect anyways. Yeah. But Bama would be over USC. A two-loss uh, Alabama would be over a two-loss two USC. Two-loss USC or two-loss Alabama. I don't know. The, the thing is, is everyone's going to shoot to not be number four because you don't want to play Georgia, yeah. who's at number one, right? So, like, if you're USC, I actually, I actually want to see USC play Georgia. I do too. Like, as a fan, I want to see that. <laughs> That's like, the game I want to see. If so. I was a USC fan, though, I need, I want to be number three. I think USC has a much better chance against a Michigan team than a Georgia team. There you go. Oregon State at fifteen, USC at four, Utah at eleven, Washington at twelve. So here's the takeaways for the Pac-12 fan bases: USC fan base ecstatic being at four. Utah's fan base at 11 doesn't really matter to them. They're not a playoff team. Uh, If they win the Pac-12 championship, it puts them in position to go to the Rose Bowl. If they lose, they're going to get leapfrogged by Washington, and they're not going to go to the Rose Bowl. Washington will be in front of them in the rankings and have a 10-win season. They'll only have nine. So I think Washington fans at 12 are probably really happy. Oregon State at 15 is interesting because – Let's just say, hypothetically, there's some chaos in front of Oregon State. Uh, the bowl, the bowl uh, projections there for Oregon State are getting interesting. I think they have moved out of a Sun Bowl, guys. So there you go. I mean, Don't have to go to El Paso. <laughs> I mean, Washington could be a top-10 team heading to the Rose Bowl. I mean, we talked yeah. about before the start of the year how that could be a sleeper team, and they really have fulfilled that this year. Like They've been great. And what a season for those uh, guys up in Seattle. All right, I want your phone calls, your reaction, Oregon, Oregon State, UCLA. Oregon's got to be disappointed being at 16. They were so much higher all year long in UCLA there. But it really does make, like, look, here's Oregon State's season. You know, the three teams they lost to in the Pac-12 are all in front of them in the rankings. And USC probably was a winnable game. 
and Washington was a winnable game if they have a quarterback. I think it's just really interesting to kind of see where Oregon State is. And I said this before the Civil War football games. I really do feel like these two programs are in good hands. I think if Dan Lanning and Jonathan Smith both stick around, I think Oregon and Oregon State are going to find themselves in these rankings in an expanded playoff uh, for the foreseeable future. Uh, keep an eye on that. Leave it here. you got the BFT statewide. Back to the Bald Face Truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. I want to ask you a question. Yes, you out there listening, even if you've never called before, especially if you've never called before, or if you're a regular caller, that's okay too. I want to ask you a question when it comes to Friday's Pac-12 championship game. I want you to tell me whether or not you're rooting for USC. It's a simple question. Are you rooting for USC? If so, why? Are you rooting against USC? Tell me why. I want to know, 503-417-7575, because on one hand, maybe you're going, A, I'm going to root for USC because it means a Pac-12 team getting to the playoff is uh, gives some cred to the Pac-12 conference. It proves that USC and UCLA didn't have to leave the Pac-12 to make the playoff at four teams. That Everybody said that. That was part of the reason why they were leaving. Um, it, it also means there's some money. That will go. That will be distributed among the 12 members of the Pac-12 conference. Six million dollars. So it's worth a half a million dollars to Oregon State, Washington State, Arizona, Oregon. Everybody gets a half a million dollars in their pocket because USC makes the championship uh, invitational tournament. Uh, also, maybe you want to see Caleb Williams play uh, in in the playoff against Georgia, so to speak. Um, I think USC get run out of that building uh, against Georgia by the way. But you tell me, are you rooting for the Trojans against the Utes? Now, if you're a Utes fan, this, the answer's simple. If you're, if you're a USC fan, the answer's simple. But I want to talk to casual observers, people who don't have a dog in the fight. Which dog are you picking? Which dog do you want to win? 503-417-7575 is the number. If you're rooting for Utah because you don't want USC to win the Pac-12 championship because they are a, uh, they betrayed the Pac-12 by you know agreeing to go to the Big Ten, I want to hear from you. 503-417-7575. Judah, who are you rooting for and why? So I don't like this about myself, <laughs> but I am rooting for USC, and it's for the uh, – it's for the TV product only, really, for me. Like, it's one of those things where it's like I'm resigned to rooting for USC because I don't really, I mean, I don't really like Utah. You know, I, I, I kind of, I really respect Kyle Whittingham, but I don't like this Utah team. This Utah team doesn't do much for me outside of Clark Phillips. Like, Tavion's gone through a lot. I know that, but he wasn't very good when he finally played, you know, uh, the other night. Uh, rising's been tough, but, you know, I'd rather see Caleb in the playoff and just see what happens rather than, man, I'm just pissed off at USC for their Pac-12 departure. So I'm so, kind of resigned to the Trojans. So there's, there's no – this is this is more about you, what you want to see in the playoff 
less about their, you know, I, I, I want the money in the pocket for the rest of the Pac-12. Yeah, because I, okay. like, I know so the a, money thing, but as yeah. a fan? As a I, fan. What does money really mean to the conference yeah. from a fan perspective? Like, good for the know. conference, but it's not worth, you know, crying Let's about Let's get Scott Barnes on line one and say, hey, 500000 yes or no? You want? <laughs> and he'll be like, uh, yes, that pays for a feasibility study. Um, so let's go to the phone line. Steven, what do you think? Yeah, you think? Uh, I'm, I'm rooting for USC. And I think it's, really? be- yeah, it's because I want to see, I think it's wow. a better matchup, and I don't want to see Alabama back in the playoff or Ohio State. I want to see someone new. I think it'll be a fun matchup between Caleb Williams and Georgia. But I will say this, John, just like I'm not an Oregon fan, like I've said, I'd rather, I'm more of a fan that likes to see Oregon lose than to see the Oregon State Beavers win. Like, I think it's funnier. I think it's funny when a team like USC, mm. with all their, you know, their machoism and their confidence yeah. get absolutely destroyed. And I, I'm agree with you. I think Georgia would destroy them. So I think it would be funny in that sense that we get someone new, <laughs> but then they go and they lose by 35. And they get in there and they get shown that would how suck far for the away conference, they are. though. Wouldn't yeah. it? Wouldn't that be- I don't think it would. Yeah. I don't, I, no, because they're think, not even in the conference. They're in the Big I think, Ten. I think Georgia's going to do that to a but lot of teams. That would be you know? the problem. People would be like, oh, my goodness. Like, the Pac-12 is going to be so bad. Their best team from two years ago sucks. Okay, so so maybe maybe what you want is you want USC at three. You want them to beat Michigan, and then they advance to the championship game and then get beat 55-14. No, I don't want it. I don't want USC to win. I don't want that. Yeah, I want <laughs> a better national championship game. So. Really, I'm really yeah. threading the needle yeah. here. <laughs> All right, let's go to the phone lines. 503-417-7575. Mike is in Vancouver. Mike, who are you rooting for and why? The Utah Utes. They're a Pac-12 team. Those other two teams have left our conference as far as I'm concerned, and I don't care if they win anymore. <laughs> yeah. There you go. You know, just like that, you know. Yep. I would root for the Ducks, even though I'm a Coug, if they were going to the national title because they're still a Pac-12 team. Yeah, so you like the – we got to come up for a name for, like, the 10, the 10 holdovers, the Magnificent 10. The Pac-10. I don't know. The Pac-10, Colorado, I think, would be cool. Colorado's in there. You can't call them the Magnificent 10. Uh, let's go to Jackson, who's in Boise, Idaho. Jackson, welcome to the show. Who are you rooting for? Yeah, I'm rooting for USC, and I like I like what you guys are saying about how we want them to play Georgia. Uh, I think we need to root for some teams to get against some S, you know, Pac-12 teams to get go against an SEC team, um, which is going to deplete the credibility that the Pac-12 has as a Power Five. But uh, I want to see them lose in the championship or lose in the playoffs. Yeah, I th- I think I'm with you on that. I, I'm I'm see I all season long. I'm going to confess all season long. I have been I picked against USC in the beginning. Stephen and I I can remember you and I talking about this like mm-hmm. week two. They were you know USC was going to play Stanford in the opening Pac-12 game, and we said you look out for Stanford. I couldn't and- wait to bet Stanford money line <laughs> that game, and I did. Did not go great. Yep. Uh. I think uh, we wait all season long. I was going, they're not that good. I saw them against Oregon State. They looked very ordinary. We didn't know Oregon State was a 9-3 and three team, but they looked ordinary. And I said, they're going to lose multiple games. You know, they'll be lucky to win eight, maybe nine. Here they are as a one-loss team, and their only loss is by one point in Salt Lake City to Utah. And they're playing Utah again. Now, look. I, I'm going to build a case for Utah winning this game before I tell you that I don't think Utah can win this game. Uh, Andy Ludwig, the offensive coordinator at Utah, figured something out 
in, on October 15th when his team was playing USC at Rice-Eccles Stadium. If you look at the drive chart from that game, Utah, on their final six drives of the game, scored five touchdowns. And on the sixth drive, they drove like 75 yards and fumbled the ball inside the three-yard line. They were going to be six for six had they not fumbled a snap. He figured something out in that game. So can he carry that over with a healthy Dalton Kincaid at tight end? Can he carry that over to a championship game? Will Utah be able to score at will against USC? That's the question. That's what they're going to have to do because USC is going to score points in this game. It was 43-42 at Rice-Eccles Stadium. It had a lot of the feel like the Oregon-Oregon State game. You know, USC was up like 21-7 to start the game. And Utah just kept playing. And in the end, went for two. Kyle Whittingham went for two with no time left and won the damn game 43-42. Didn't want to go to overtime. And, you know, can Utah put a lot of pressure on USC by just scoring and scoring and scoring? They're going to have to. Now, I have reasonable doubt that they'll be able to because Cam Rising hasn't been the same since that game. He didn't look good against Oregon. Uh, their running back situation with Tavion Thomas apparently has been solved, but they're not dynamic at running back. Their receivers don't scare you. It's Dalton Kincaid, the tight end, and it's Andy Ludwig, the offensive coordinator, and he's got, you know, he's got a guy at quarterback in Cam Rising that is a, is, uh, and I mean this in the best way, he's a hacker. Like I don't mean that with a negative golf connotation. I mean like, you know, if you're there's hackers and there's non-hackers in the world. Like, Cam Rising's a hacker. Like, he'll get through some stuff. So he's got that at quarterback. And did he find something out in that game that USC won't have an answer for still since October 15th? If he has, then your play is is Utah plus three points because uh, Utah can hang if they can score. And, but if he hasn't, I think it's going to look really similar to the Apple Cup where Washington just has it clicking and Michael Penix Jr. is throwing the ball over the field and Washington State was just not good enough. They were just not on that level with Washington in the Apple Cup. I want to know who you're rooting for. 503-417-7575. Your turn. Back to the bald Face Truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Who are you rooting for in the Pac-12 championship game? Your heart? What does it say? What does your head say? Dan Wetzel, a columnist at Yahoo Sports, friend of this show, wrote a column today, uh, and he said that it should be Georgia, Michigan, TCU, USC today when the rankings come out. Uh, and he said, and it should be them forever. His point is Georgia, Michigan, TCU, and USC have all – you know, earned the right to play in their conference championship game. Ohio State, five. Alabama, six, have not. And his logic is, why should we reward the teams that don't make the conference championship game and get to sit home by allowing them to leapfrog teams that have earned the right to play another game? Let's kick that around for a second. Do you get the logic there? Steven, do you get the logic? Judah, do you get the logic when it comes to that? Yeah, I mean, it makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, we talked about this a little bit. Once Alabama lost to LSU, we knew they weren't going to the SEC championship game, and that might benefit them in the long run 
if some teams lose, which is not fair, right? Like, I think you should be awarded for getting to the conference championship game and, you know, ultimately winning it, but at least getting to that game, you have to play that extra game. It's just like the Pac-12, how they play nine conference games, and that's always the downfall of the conference. Someone is going to lose in those nine games. It's very hard to go undefeated. And so just to play this conference championship game, you get one more extra game, yeah, it can help your resume, but it can also hurt you because you're going to play a good team. It can only hurt you. Like for USC, in USC's case, it, it can only hurt USC. And TCU and USC in particular could really be hurt if they lose this game. And they, they gain nothing by winning the game. They're still There'll be a playoff team. And so I guess Wetzel's point is, look, after 12 games, the committee believed that an 11-1 USC has proven itself worthy of a playoff spot, more worthy than Ohio State and Alabama. It's not logical to ask USC to play a 13th game to prove its worthiness over Alabama and Ohio State again, who happen to be sitting home because they didn't make their conference championship game. You're basically punishing USC for winning its division and playing the conference title. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, what about the eye test? I mean, what if USC loses to Utah? Are you going to actually say, oh, you know, Mm. that team – Earned the college football playoff because they got there to the Pac-12 title. You know, I think it's really interesting. The argument is yeah. sound if every conference is created equal, but as much as we love the Pac-12 and we got six teams in and quarterback play is so good and all that, like we know, not every conference is created equal. What if USC said we're not going to play this game? We're not going to play Utah. Oh, that'd be sweet. on Friday. That'd be so good. We're yeah. not going to play. We don't feel like we have anything to prove. We're going to rest Caleb Williams. We're sitting in the fourth spot. We're not going to play. Oh, and by the way, we're going to the Big Ten next year instead yeah. of 2024. Yeah. Are they allowed to do that? I don't know. Mark's in Eugene, though. I want to know who he's rooting for, what he makes of it. Mark, what's on your mind? Well, I'm thinking that um, USC should win because if they win, then everybody else behind gets a better bowl, right? In theory, yes. If they lose, though... They probably go to a New Year's Six Bowl anyway, so it probably doesn't affect everybody else, but it could affect teams, you know, it could affect the final college football playoff ranking, and and uh, it could affect the perception of teams. But I think, I think no matter what, I think the Pac-12 is going to have either USC in the playoff and, and Washington in the Rose Bowl, or they're going to have... Utah in the Rose Bowl, and USC in a New York Six Bowl game. How about that? Yeah, that makes sense, though. You know, yeah. I would I would feel like. But um, USC just can't get blown off the field because that would be the only situation where they might yes. not get a New Year's Six. Yeah, I don't think they because would be. Then, but... Because the competition's going to be Alabama and Ohio State, but Ohio State will go to the Rose probably, likely no matter what. Uh, by the way, anybody believe Ohio State's going to sh- Ohio State's not going to want to be in the Rose Bowl. I think Washington's going to win the Rose Bowl. I think Washington's going to go to the Rose Bowl and encounter an Ohio State team that's going. We were here last year. We don't want to be here. We wanted to be in the playoff. That was well, same dynamic last year. Ohio State got rocked by Michigan. They went to the playoff. They played Utah, and no defense showed up. But it was a classic Rose Bowl, and Ohio State won it. I think you're right. I think Washington would beat them. I think Washington could beat them. I really, I do. But Washington's defense isn't so hot either. So, do you think Washington could beat USC right now? Yeah, I do. I do. I think Washington would beat USC. If I they mean, played. T- play the yeah. over. 
But yeah, yeah. <laughs> are, are you not buying the USC defense yet, John? Because they've no. been a, they've been a lot better. No, I I think Notre Dame scored what fifteen points against Stanford. Yeah. You know, c- come on, Mike's in Aloha. Mike, welcome to the show. Hello. Yeah. You're hey, I want. I think Utah is going to win because I don't want Lincoln Riley to win his first year as a USC mm. coach. It's obnoxious, isn't it? Yes, it is. Are you are you thinking with your heart or your head on this one? Because I've asked myself that question anytime I find myself going, you know, I don't want USC to have that have it that easy this year. I go, uh, am I am I am I thinking with my heart? Uh, well, you know, usually they think uh, like Alabama, USC, Ohio State. They're always like the untouchable one, mm-hmm. pretty much. I hear you. I I, hear a- you. I don't I don't think you're alone. I don't think Mike's alone. I think there are a lot of fans. I just had a friend of mine that I went to college with who texted me. I don't even think he's listening to the show, and he's thinking about the same topic. He texted me, and he said, I'm going for Utah. And I think uh, I think there's a lot of people out there that would like to see Utah win because it would be like, hey, it's not USC and Lincoln Riley, but look, uh, do you want a playoff team or not? Do you want the perception in two years when USC goes to the Big Ten for people to go, you know, they had to go to the Big Ten to get to the playoff. They couldn't get there in the Pac-12. Uh, you know, I think that perception's out there. Mike is in Camus. Mike, welcome. Hey, John, what's up, buddy? Hey, all I got real quick is I just think we're crazy if we're if we're not keeping in mind that West Coast kids need to play in West Coast schools. I don't need to hear the other. Every time you turn around, you got a California kid. And I, I'm, a, I'm a coog, man. Uh, but you got a California kid playing and making those other places in the country better. Forget it. I I, I grew up in the Pac-10, man. So the 12 was weird, and it's even weirder to think SC's gone. But West Coast kids need to play in West Coast schools, man. I appreciate you. you got to be Bye-bye. loyal to your soil. And I think uh, – I, I actually – I agree. David Shaw was on this show prior to the season, and he talked about geography as if it were a force of, you know, nature. And he said uh, that he believed that geography would win, that geography ultimately would dictate that UCLA and USC would have to play uh, in the uh, western part of the United States as part of their conference, that they would be back one day. Uh, I think he's right. And I think there's a chance on December 14th when the UC Regents meet that UCLA will be told, you know, or they'll be given enough of a penalty that they will seriously consider staying in the Pac-12. I think they're probably doing that right now. Uh, but I have another question for the room, and I want to, and I want you to line up. If you're listening to this, I don't care if you're a first-time caller or an everyday caller. But what are the chances that Caleb Williams at USC wins the Heisman Trophy, and that Michael Penix Jr. is voted by the coaches in the Pac-12? as the Pac-12's Offensive Player of the Year. Which of those two guys is better? Which of those two guys would you want on your team? Which of those two guys is the Pac-12's best player? I posed it to Trent Bray, the Oregon State defensive coordinator, and he kind of answered it in a, in a workaround way. He said that he felt like, they did better against Caleb Williams than they did Michael Penix Jr. Like, they handled him better. But it wasn't really answering it. I want you to answer it. Who is better? Who who deserves to be the Pac-12's Offensive Player of the Year? 503-417-7575.
You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald face truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. What are the chances that USC quarterback Caleb Williams wins the Heisman and that Washington quarterback Michael Penix Jr. is voted Pac-12 Offensive Player of the Year? Plus, I want to know who you're rooting for, USC or Utah, in the conference championship game. And if you're an Oregon fan or an Oregon State fan, can I give you a third thing to think about here? You can call in on any of this stuff. But if you're an Oregon State fan, you have to be thinking about the win over Oregon in the rivalry game, the Civil War game, as more than just a win in a given season. You have to be thinking of it as a pivot point for your program. Like, Jonathan Smith has got some trajectory. He's got some momentum. He's getting a lot of players back next season. Like, it's not unthinkable that Oregon State could be uh, headed to, uh, you know, you know, a, a 9 or 10 or 11 win season next year. It's not unthinkable in the Pac-12. Um, meanwhile, at Oregon, are you concerned about Dan Landing, or do you look at year one and go, hey, he went 9-3, and three. you expected some growing pains, they will reload, they'll hire an offensive coordinator, I think it's a really important hire for him, and they will be fine when he gets some of his defensive players. Like, how are you sort of, you know, I guess 72 hours later, looking at Saturday's loss to Oregon State? I want to throw those three things at you. Michael Penix Jr., Caleb Williams, who's the Pac-12 Offensive Player of the Year, who you're rooting for in the Pac-12 title game, uh, and or how you feeling if you're a Duck fan or Beaver fan about next season? 503-417-7575. Let's go to the phone lines. Let's start with Connor, who's in Portland. Connor, what's on your mind? You know, uh, Penix, gotta be, gotta be the Pac-12 Player of the Year. Uh, Man, if we wouldn't have lost to ASU, God, we would have been just ready to lose to Georgia. Zing. <laughs> yeah, Washington's loss to Arizona State is, I think it's the most puzzling loss of the season. Guys agree with that? Like, I can explain Utah losing at Autzen Stadium to Oregon. I could explain Oregon losing to Washington. I could explain Oregon losing to Oregon State. I can explain Oregon State losing to Utah badly. I can explain Oregon State losing to USC. I can explain, like, you can explain USC losing at, at Utah. I can't explain Washington losing to Arizona State. Yeah, you're right. I'm, I'm racking my brain over here trying to think of what that's by far the craziest loss because it was coming off the firing and Arizona State hadn't looked good those first couple games. So, yeah, I, that is wild to think about. The Washington, how good they are right now, going on the road and losing to Arizona State the way they did. Puzzling. Francisco's in Chehalis, Washington. What's on your mind, Francisco? Hey, uh, USC is much healthier than the time they played Utah. They had seven or eight injuries players, but that was a big concern to us. I've been an SC fan since 1970, alumni. Last time, in regard to William, I think he's only a sophomore, and USC has the momentum. He runs the playoff, and also, if he wins the Heisman, he might be the second quarterback that might replicate Archie Griffin. Most people, your listeners, don't know, uh, are much younger than I am. Griffin got two Heismans, and Williams is only a sophomore, still learning. 
He had a big maturation from Oklahoma, so we'll see. So we'll see. I mean, I get what you're saying, but I, I think you know, transfer portal. Let's see who's there. Let's see who's healthy. Let's see. You know, I Caleb Williams. I think he's a really good player, and it's a quarterback-centric game. And I think if if USC doesn't have him, uh, obviously I think they lose several games. But uh, I could say the same thing for Washington. I could say the same thing for Washington State. I could say the same thing for Oregon. You know, we saw what happened to Oregon when Bo Nix got hurt. Not the same team. Bob's in Milwaukee. Bob, go ahead. Well, I'm a Duck fan, and at the beginning of the year, we had nine and three expectations, and guess what? We have nine and three results. Yeah. So for a lot of Duck fans, so I think it's been a good year, and looking forward to what Dan Lanning has uh, to in store for next year. And as far as offensive player of the year, you know, I'd have to give it to the offensive line of Oregon State. They opened holes, especially on the Duck. Yeah, they blew uh, they blew Oregon off the ball in the in the uh, in the rivalry game. I mean, I think it was uh, it was phenomenal. Uh, guys, I have three candidates for the weirdest game of the year. Okay, I want to tweet this out, and I want you to tell me if this is uh, if this is poor form or not. Uh, candidate number one for weirdest outcome of the Pac-12 season: Arizona State over Washington. Candidate number two. Arizona over UCLA. Mm-hmm. Candidate number three, Stanford over Notre Dame. Yeah, I think those are probably the three. I mean, because Eastern <laughs> Michigan, Arizona State, would you put that in there as well? I mean, that would be the only other one. No, because Arizona State ended up being bad, so you can see that happens to bad teams. You know, sometimes the small college teams, mid-majors or less, will win those games, but the other one is Stanford in that conversation with the Stanford win over Notre Dame. Is that even on par? Is this a, is that a hard one? No, I for think anybody? That, I think that's a good one because Stanford was really bad this year. I, I think about if they would beat Oregon State. I think that one could have gone up there because this Stanford team offensively wasn't good, and they put up twenty seven against that Oregon State defense. Uh, like you said, they only scored what fifteen against Notre Dame or whatever. Like, yeah, I think that's a very that, that should be in the top three. Yeah, and the fact that Notre Dame is. A good team, apparently, which at the at the time of the Stanford yeah. loss, we thought they were a, a garbage fire. And I know they had QB injuries and a lot of different injuries, so they were a different team when they lost to Stanford. They were a different team when they almost lost to Cal. But at the same time, they played a lot better the last six weeks, so that Stanford loss looks a little weird now. Yeah, I, I think that's good to be in there. Yeah, any others that you can think of? Those are the three that come to mind for me. The co- so I was still shocked by the Colorado win over Cal. And I know you looked back <laughs> at it, and Cal only won two games. But C- Wilcox, what are we it doing? Was at home. Cal was at home. No, Colorado game went was to at over- home. Yeah. Or Colorado was at home, I mean, and game went to overtime. It was, a, it was their parent weekend. I don't know. Like, it was a weird game. Cal, Cal just inept enough on offense to, to have that be a close game, maybe. To me, that wasn't as wild as Arizona State beating Washington how they beat them or Arizona beating UCLA when UCLA was sniffing around like, hey, we belong in the playoff. No, you don't. You can't beat Arizona at home. What was that spread? Like 20? Or what was it? It was double digit. It was definitely double digit. Cal, Colorado, uh, UCLA, Arizona. No, UCLA, Arizona. Yeah, that was around 20, yeah. And they lose outright. Cal, Colorado was like 14 and a half, if I remember correctly. 
ASU UW was is at the more distance I get from it, the more strange it becomes because UW is playing so well. But but yeah. you know I that was definitely a double digit spread too, and I that was off the heels of a big win for Washington. I think looking back yeah. at their schedule now um, they. Uh, Oh I'm no! That, that was they had two road games consecutive: UCLA, Arizona State. And they lost. Maybe both. trap game. Uh, were they looking ahead? I but don't how, know. How can it be a trap game after you already yeah. lost the week I don't before? Know. <laughs> like they, they lost. They gave up forty in both games. Like the the UWD. Nobody plays defense in this conference outside of Oregon State. Yeah, I mean, I think Oregon State is easily the best defensive team. And John, for you know, you and me have been on the record of not liking USC this year. How could you not have Caleb Williams as the Pac-12 Offensive Player of the Year? Like, I look at his stats, I look at his numbers, I look at the way he was on the field. I think I don't he's. Know. You heard Trent Bray. He's. I mean, he said they felt like they played Caleb better. Well, I mean, you, I think you asked him, John. You asked him who did you play better against. You didn't ask mm-hmm. him who the better player is. Mm-hmm. You said, who did you play better against, and how can you not say Caleb Williams? A, they won the game. Well, B, the coaches are going to vote. What do you think the coaches are going to do when that, they vote? That's my thing. Don't you – you? I, I love your angles on this. Isn't there a little bit of, like, USC hate from the Pac-12 coaches? Much in the same way they the Pac-12 do coaches yeah. hated on Cristobal, and they voted that way. Yeah. Do they do they hate on USC with this offensive player of the year vote? I think they do, and I think they give it to the lefty. I do too, and I don't think it's right. Like I think Caleb Williams is easily the offensive player of the year. I mean, he threw three interceptions all season. That was the big storyline is USC turnover differential, and it's all because of him. So, like, do you think it'll be if the if Caleb Williams is not voted offensive player of the year and he wins the Heisman? Is it out of spite, or is it because the coaches went, Penix is the better player? I spite. Spite, for sure. 100% spite. And I hope, to, I hope it happens. I'm about to get it. Also, yeah. the Heisman, let's right. not pretend like it's a great Heisman race. It's no. A, it's a poop Heisman race, and Caleb's going to win it. But it wasn't because he's been awesome wire to wire. Like, okay, I've so what should I do with it. my Heisman vote? Because I'm wrestling with this. I opened my, you know, it's an online voting thing. It's super, super, like, secretive and encrypted and all that. it takes a lot of effort to get to your ballot so i the other day i just tested like how hard is it going to be for me as i go to vote in the press box on friday night or even on saturday should i wait for saturday after caleb williams and usc beat utah how hard is it going to be for me to log in and and i got in there and i said gosh i can fill this out without submitting it should i put caleb williams in now and if so, is it does it make me a homer if I put Michael Penix Jr. as my number? You pick three people as my number three. No, is I, it a homer? No, I don't think so. I, I I think I talked to Jude about this. Like Michael Penix Jr. should be at least talked about. Like Bo Nix is being talked about. Penix's numbers are awesome, yeah. but Caleb Williams' numbers are that much better, I think, than Michael Penix. You dub waited it, way too long to market Penix as a yeah. Heisman guy. Like they, I just saw they put out a tweet over the weekend. I think that yeah. might have been their first Penix Heisman tweet. They did a, a Michael Jordan be like Mike thing and they it they waited they waited until the season was over yeah. to start promoting good, good him. Good job, Huskies. Some that was someone's job. That was somebody's job at Washington. They didn't do a good job. Yeah, I was on KJR in Seattle today, and they, they brought it up. They were, like, making fun of Washington, going, why did they wait so long? But I, I think I think they were kind of, like, Washington was a late bloomer, given the loss to Arizona State. They ended up as a late bloomer in, you know, in the, in the, in the conference. So 
they kind of came on at the end. Like, nobody wants to play them now. You wanted to play them early. Five at five coming up. Leave it here. BFFT. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with a bald faced truth. Keep an eye on that Pac 12 Offensive Player of the Year award. Could be a doozy, could be a vote against USC when the coaches cast their ballots. By the way, the coaches' ballots are due. The Monday after the championship game, Monday, December 5th, the ballots are due. We'll see how they, uh, how do they vote when this all comes out. Uh, every day on the show, we give you the five at five. We got Punch It Audio coming up. So much to talk about. Big show tomorrow, more big guests. We had Trent Bray, the Oregon State defensive coordinator, on the show today. He has been rewarded with a contract extension at Oregon State. We'll get into that as well as uh, we we give you the five at five. The five biggest stories going on. Let's do it. The five at five. Brought to you by Mercedes-Benz of Wilsonville. See more than 4,000 vehicles at Swickert.com. Well, USC beat Notre Dame over the weekend. Fresh off that win, USC joined the party. The party being the top four in the college football playoff rankings. It is Georgia at one. Michigan at two, TCU at three, USC at four. With wins in their respective conference title games, all four will remain in the top four of the final release. The pressure's on the top four. Those just outside of the top four are getting a pass, though. They're not having to play in these games. I'll be really curious to see if the top four all lose their conference championship games. What happens to the top four? That's number one in our five at five. By the way, Oregon State at number 15 in the college football playoff poll. Oregon at 16. Number two, Rose Bowl has been given a Wednesday deadline to participate in the college football playoff. The Rose Bowl has been pushing back, but the leaders of the CFP have issued an ultimatum giving a self-imposed deadline of Wednesday to determine whether the college football playoff can expand in time for the 2024 regular season. This is the game's most storied bowl game. It's possible they could be excluded from the rotation in the next contract. The CFP wants the Rose Bowl, but they don't want to wait for the Rose Bowl. There's no guarantees here. The Rose Bowl is clinging to the idea that it wants to always be a January 1st game Part of that is the Rose Parade that goes along with the Rose Bowl, the tradition, the pageantry. Well, if you are clinging to tradition and pageantry, maybe you're better off just saying, hey, we want to be a Pac-12 Big Ten matchup every year. Give us Purdue and Washington State. We'll take it. Rose Bowl says it's willing to temporarily concede its relationship with the Big Ten and the Pac-12 and host a quarterfinal game in 2024 and 2025 but they want assurances in the next contract that they will be a semifinal game in two out of every three years. And then in the third year, they can go back to being a Big Ten Pac-12 game that happens on January 1. 
There is a ultimatum Wednesday. Keep an eye on this standoff as the granddaddy of them all may be uh, pushed out of the college football playoff. Number three in our five at five, we've talked about uh, the contract extension that Trent Bray got, Oregon State's defensive coordinator. We've got some details on that contract from Oregon State. His new contract is worth $1.45 million over two years. He'll make $700,000 next season. He'll make $750,000 in 2024. That's a bump of about $150,000 a year for next year and a bump of another $100,000 in 2023. There are three Pac-12 defensive coordinators who are making at least a million dollars per season. USC's Alex Grinch and Tosh Lapoy at Oregon are getting $1.7 million, a million dollars more than Trent Bray will get at Oregon State. Morgan Scally at Utah is getting $1.4 million. UCLA's Bill McGovern getting $900,000. Peter Sermon at Cal, $875,000. Forgive me, Oregon State. I know you're, you have the right intention in mind here, but if you don't want to lose Trent Bray, pay him the kind of money that nobody else is going to pay him. His buyout, by the way, is $50,000. $50,000. It rises to $100,000 if uh, he's in the Pac-12. Nick Daschle of Oregon Live had the details. That's kind of ridiculous. ESPN reporting that uh, some of the women who have settled lawsuits with Deshaun Watson, who accused him of sexual misconduct, will be uh, in attendance at Sunday's game at N Energy Stadium, NRG Stadium. Browns will play the Texans. Deshaun Watson will make his comeback after a return from an 11-game suspension. Tony Busby, the attorney who represented about 10 of the women, said some of his clients wanted to go. They thought it was important to make clear that they're still here and they still matter. They want to make a statement. The women declined to comment ahead of Sunday's game, according to the attorney. NFL spokesperson did not answer an email from the Associated Press. Deshaun Watson making his comeback. A lot of eyes on him. Let's talk about Deion Sanders. Deion Sanders was offered the head coaching job at Colorado per Deion Sanders. That's right, Deion Sanders breaking the news. Here's how it sounded. I'm going to play this. Yeah, Coach, um, over the weekend, Pete Thamel with uh, Fox Sports reported that uh, Colorado had made you an offer to become their next head coach. Mm -hmm. How um, true is that report, and is there any mutual interest between you and the school? Yeah, definitely. The report is true. Um, they're not the only ones. The report is true. I'm not going to sit on here and tell all my business, but they're not the only ones. And I would be a, a liar if I told you they didn't. You know they did. I know they did. Everybody there know they did. So it is what it is. That's not uh, my focus right now. My focus is to, to win and to be dominant and then to, to uh, not even to go on to the to during the Celebration Bowl. My focus is right here in this beloved stadium to be dominant on Saturday. That's my focus. And I keep the main thing the main thing. And everyone that knows me know that about me. 
not have an innate ability to focus and keep the main thing the main thing. The main thing, the main thing. A little different tune than Willie Taggart at Oregon in 2017. That's the same thing I got uh, two, three days ago. Nothing's changed. Still, nothing's changed. The answers I gave you guys then is the same answer. Remember that? I mean, I kind of like that Deion Sanders sort of addressed the elephant in the room and called it an elephant. You know, you know they did. I know they did. Everybody knows they offered me. They're not the only ones. While so many others in coaching give you ridiculous answers when they're asked questions that we, hey, we all know that you're talking to schools. Yeah, social media, you can't do anything about it. You know, I, I, just, I really don't understand how anyone can get anything other than what I tweeted. They can get some, anything else out of that. Everything I tweeted and that is what's going on today. Look where we're at. President, I'm just talking about the bowl game. What are we talking about? It's sad. I'm excited about the Vegas Bowl. Deion Sanders called it how he saw it. United States against Iran. Trying to get to the World Cup knockout stage. Needed a win. They got a goal. Robinson. And for the captain, Tyler Adams. Justin McKinney, Des making a big run. It's meant for him. Des is snuck in behind. Des in the middle. Pulisic scores. Might have paid the price, but the U.S. takes the lead. Well, let's see if this ball, if Sergio Dest is onside, top of the screen, absolutely is. John Strong, the voice of American soccer, on the call. The United States beats Iran one zip or one nil to advance to the World Cup knockout stage. That's our five at five. Let's go back through this, guys. How uh, how, how important was it for the United States to get a result there against Iran in advance? Oh, man, it was, it was huge. Sorry, Steve. <laughs> yeah, it was, uh, it was huge. Um, I was really, you know, pumped for John on the call today. He was awesome, knocked it out of the park, but... You know, as a soccer, like I, I wouldn't call myself a quote unquote soccer guy per se, but yeah. the the involvement with the Timbers and, and MLS and everything at the station, and then of course with John, like I, this was all I really cared about today was this game and a win in your end situation for the country with everything going on, the socio political stuff uh, with, with Iran and reading about the history of these two obviously countries, but also these two teams. Like, there was a ton at stake today, and to win the match and to, to go through was a really, really big deal. So uh, let out a few fist pumps and, and cheers in the studio today. It was a good time. Christian uh, Pulisic uh, plays for Chelsea when he's not in uniform for the national team. He gets the goal. He ends up, uh, I guess, in the hospital. Uh, and I forgive me, I, I kind of went to uh, the position of this is what soccer players do. They roll around on the field and they go to the hospital afterwards. It's very dramatic. But uh, apparently, uh, is the injury going to keep him out? Or or what is we have any update on the injury? It's a uh, pelvic contusion. Hmm. Uh, status is day-to-day. -day. The official uh, men's soccer team Twitter tweeted that out. Uh, but he did post on social media that he was uh, bleeping proud of his guys and he'll be back for Saturday. So I don't I don't ever want a pelvic contusion. No, that sounds terrible. But uh, <laughs> he says he's he says he's going to play, so I'll believe him. Yeah, just you know, if you guys didn't see the goal, like he ran from probably 30, 35 yards away, put his foot in the ground, busted his ass from point A to point B, and never stopped sprinting 
to the mouth of the goal. That's where the cross came in, and he finished it, and he collided hard running at full speed with the goalkeeper. Like, it's it's a cathartic moment. Like, he did not give a single, you know, bit of ground. He he just sprinted from start to finish, and he had to to get to the ball, and he did, and that's what puts the country to the next round. It, it's an unbelievable, epic moment for the guy. And uh, now it's the round of 16. They'll get the Netherlands. I was pretty tuned into the World Cup, not because I was that interested in the World Cup, or not even because John Strong, the voice of American soccer, was on the call. I was tuned into it because my nephew happened to be visiting over Christmas break. He's going to school at Oregon State. He ended up coming to our house because he didn't want to fly home to California. And he's a soccer player. And so I was watching it kind of through his eyes, and he was very excited about it, and he knew all the intel about all the players. And I started getting into it when they were – Playing against, uh, you know, playing against uh, Wales and playing against uh, England, it was interesting to kind of watch through the eyes of somebody who's a diehard fan. But um, you know, good for the United States to punch the ticket to get into the 16. Uh, Polisic says he's he can go, but it'll be interesting to see what happens. He says, "Don't worry, he'll be able to go." Um, All right, let's come back. We're going to play some Punch It audio. I have so much more ahead. On tomorrow's show, uh, Ross Dellinger from Sports Illustrated will be joining us to talk about the future of college football as it pertains to an expanded playoff, the Rose Bowls deadline, all of that tomorrow in the 4 o'clock hour. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Audio coming up, uh, bottom of the hour. Tomorrow in the show, Ross Dellinger, Sports Illustrated, will be joining us. Uh, also, Jace Coburn, the head uh, men's basketball coach at Portland State, will be with us on tomorrow's show as well. Uh, really excited about basketball taking off. Guys, how are you feeling? Like, Stephen, come on, I haven't checked in with you on the Blazers lately. And I know I was right that they would, they would have sort of a fall-off. I'm not celebrating it, but... We're talking about a team now that'll play on TNT tonight, uh, coming up at seven o'clock. They're eleven and nine. They are a far cry from where they were earlier in the year. Uh, where, 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 where do the Blazers belong right now? When you look at the playoff picture, where do they belong? Yeah, right now they're in sixth place, and I think that's about right. They're a little bit below. Uh, you know, they're still three games out of first and only a game and a half out of eleventh. So the West. The West is just proving to be a really good conference in general, but yeah. um, this is the real first adversity the Blazers are facing, and Damian Lillard's been out, and now they're not playing as well defensively. And yeah. I touched on this a little bit also. Like I felt like the Blazers had something to prove. And at the start of the year, those first 10 games or so, they really came out and pr- wanted to prove it and say, you know what, last year was a fluke, it was all injuries. And now that has kind of gone away. It has gone away where they're not playing as hard, not playing as uh, cohesive with each other. So some some adversity is happening right now, and it's going to be very interesting to see as the schedule lightens up a little bit if the Blazers continue to beat these teams that they're supposed to because they've beaten a lot of teams they haven't supposed to beat this year, and now the schedule gets a little easier. So adversity and uh, schedule easing up, it should be okay. I think the Blazers are right around 6, 7, 8, but uh, I don't think they're at the top like they were. I don't earlier. think they're going to be a top 6 team at the end. I think they're going to be in that 7 to 10 range. I think that's kind of where I see them, but 
Um, you know, look, I, I thought they were a really pleasant surprise at the beginning of the season. We needed to see it. I was a little disappointed in you because you said, let's give it 25 games. Let's be patient. Let's see them. And right around 15 games, you went, you know what? They're going all the way. <laughs> you kind of, you kind I mean, of, all the way. I, you I, kind I, of gave in though. I didn't will you? say I did. I changed, I changed my thought from being the 10 seed to, they should be looking to get to that six seed in the actual playoffs. Like that. I should think be you realistic. said all the way. I didn't did, you yeah. not say they're going all the way? I made a, made a big bet <laughs> on the Blazers to win it all. No. Um, <laughs> look, I, 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 I okay. I want to give him credit. Because I don't want to be one of these people who just sits back and nitpicks and says, oh, they're not going anywhere. Like, it's really easy to do that. Let's give them credit. Like, they were a great surprise for about 15, 16 games for a fan base that really needed something to cheer for. Like, it, I, I thought, like, the way they played was admirable. I think you got to give Joe Cronin some credit. Really nice surprise to start the season. But I kept looking at teams like... Golden State, in particular, who really struggled out of the gates, and and others, and I kept going, you know, give it more time, give it more time. Here we are at 20 games now. They're 11 and nine. They're at they're at sixth, and you say, yeah, they're two games out of second. They're also two games out of 11th. Okay, so I kind of feel like they're finding themselves, finding where they are. Do do the warrior does the Warriors do the Warriors finish in front of the Blazers? Yeah, hundred percent. Okay, okay. Does Utah finish in front of the Blazers? No. Does Sacramento finish in front of the Blazers? I want to say no. I think they're really close with Sacramento. I, I I do think that you are right. That right around Sacramento, that's about right. So I have them. I think the Blazers will be right at. Let's put it. I'm going to put the number at eight. That's my over under. The eighth best team in the West. Over or under? Uh, I would take the because they're at over. six now. I would take the over. I think they're nine or ten. So okay, uh, you mean so you think they'll so the, finish uh, under? Yeah, I think fin- they'll finish worse than eight. Yes. So okay, so you're saying that I, that was my question to you when we started the segment, and you said you know they're right where they should I, be. I, well, I think they are. I mean, expectations wise have changed for me, John. I think the expectations should be to get into the playoffs and get the, into the top six, but I don't think it's going to happen. Okay. If then we sense. agree. What are we talking about? We agree then. We're like two old men sitting on a park bench agreeing with each other. We and are. Arguing about it. Because, I mean, they have been exciting. Like, that's the thing. Like, they've been really exciting. Um, and it's been a good start to the season. I just think it's a little bit of fool's gold in that they yeah. won some games that they shouldn't have won. But now with the schedule easing up, you know, they got to get these wins. And I don't know that they're going to. All right. So let me just say, I'm just going to throw a team out. And you tell me, does this team finish in front of the Blazers at the end of the year? Okay. Phoenix. Yes. Denver. Yes. The Pelicans. Yep. Memphis. Yes. The Clippers. Yes. The Warriors. Yes. Okay, so now the Blazers are in the seventh spot. Yes. There's six teams I just gave you. You didn't hesitate with any of them, by no, the way. No, You, uh, let's go Minnesota. Um, I'm going to go with yes. You think Minnesota's in front of the Blazers? Yeah, even though Carl Anthony Towns is okay. out, I still think that they're better. So the so the Blazers are now at eight. Utah. Nope. Sacramento. No. Dallas. Yes. You think Dallas is going to finish in front of the Blazers? Yeah. I think Luka Doncic right. is the second best player in the NBA. All so right. I think so now the Blazers are at nine. Okay. Nine. How about Oklahoma City? Nope. Lakers? No. Okay. And no and no. 
So you have him at nine. I got him at nine. I, at the start of the year, I had him at ten, John. I've moved him up to yeah. nine. Yeah. <laughs> You're really a, impressed. He's got a big smile on his face every time he says, yeah, they're ahead right, of the so, Blazers. Judah, you've been listening to this conversation. I started off by saying, you know, where are the Blazers where they're supposed to be? Maybe I posed the question wrong. I, I, don't, I didn't see them as a top six team. I felt like Steven was arguing they are a top six team, and then now he's telling me they're the ninth best team. Yeah, but Dame's been out. That's, that, it doesn't matter. Yes, it does. Come it doesn't on. matter. He's Damian Lamont, Ollie Lillard, okay? It matters <laughs> if he's playing. Injuries happen. Bo Nix has a bad wheel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, Injuries we can't... to your star player yeah. and keep him out for multiple games. That just happens, and you got to deal with it. Like, I, it's true. I do understand the overall argument, but his availability has a direct impact where they finish in the standings. That's just the way it goes. If Luka goes down, the Mavs are finishing d- in front of the Blazers. I actually don't think... It matters if he comes back and plays healthy or not. I don't think they're one of the six best teams with him healthy. It, they're not one of the six best teams without him healthy. I think they're 7-10 to 10 with him or without him. Maybe they're 7 with him if he's having a banner year. Maybe they're 9 without him. It's not that big a difference. Will, it's like, will you, know, you go to a game at Moda Center this year covering it from press row? That's the Yes. Rest. Uh, uh, no, no, no. Let me rephrase. A regular season game. Yeah, I'll go. I'll go as a fan too and watch it. You'll probably go as a fan before you go, as, go a as a media member. I'll go. I, I, know, the, the Blazer. What do you think, man? That their PR team is in flux. Their operation is. Everybody's new there. Well, that's why they hired Sean to get it all yeah, going together. Exactly. Do you guys find it interesting that the Seahawks and the Blazers kind of swooned at the same time? They were both kind of nice surprises, and then. Just when everyone was going, you know, maybe Jody Allen's not a bad owner. It went. Were there actually people saying that, that she's not a bad owner? I heard that. I heard that. Yeah, I heard that early on. Because, look, if we're going to give, if we're going to knock her, let's be fair to her. If we're going to knock her when the teams are bad and she's an absentee and she needs to sell the team and all that, don't we have to give her a little credit when the Seahawks started off okay, you know? Like, no. they started off better like, than okay. The argument was that she could have fired Pete Carroll and John Schneider, and she apparently chose not to, you know, yeah. and so you give her credit for that. But yeah. that really, to me, it's not much of a decision. It's not, gr- it's like, not great ownership. Jody it's Allen just, is going to yeah. fire people and rehire a new coach? Nah, she ain't. Like, she that was not that. even an option. But I th- find it really interesting that it, it was almost like in concert, the Seahawks and the Blazers came out of the gates – Really nice surprise. Like, Seahawks fans were pleasantly – Judah. Why do you have to bring the Seahawks into this? Because of that... the there is a parallel here. They're owned by the same person. They came out of the gates, really, like, just sailing out of the gates. Blazers sailed out of the gates, and then they both at the same time looked over at each other and went, now? Now's good? Okay. And they both face-planted. Uh-oh. If you would have told me that Russell Wilson would have been traded before Damian Lillard, I would have been surprised. And that happened, you know, like the, I would have thought the star player, of the Blazers would have been gone before the star player, of the Seahawks, but that worked out for Seattle. So Jody Allen is a great owner, but I mean, the results on the field don't really, I, I don't draw any conclusions about interim ownership 
trustee ownership based on results, you know, on the field or on the court. When she there should be no such thing as trustee ownership, by the way. Let's just do away with that. Uh, like, have you heard anything on that front lately? Has Phil? Uh, yes. Where's Phil uh, on all this again? I have heard that they are waiting to see with some of the other sales that are going to happen in front of them what the valuations will be. I think the ultimate thing is they're waiting for the television deal, the NBA's new TV deal, to get settled because – if that TV deal is what everybody thinks it's going to be, it's going to push the valuations of these teams higher. So Phil may have to wait. I think that it was really interesting to see billionaires fighting, first of all, because he comes out, he goes public, and he basically puts Larry Miller, his guy at Nike, out there to say, you know, Jody's a bad owner. It's absentee ownership. She should sell the team. Jody fires back by with that statement that basically said, you know, we'll sell the team when we're ready. It's not for sale. And, oh, by the way, you're probably not going to be alive because we this could drag on for 10 or 20 years. That's basically what she said to Phil Knight. It was it was billionaire on billionaire shade. And she's not really she's not really the billionaire in this equation. She's kind of like, you know, she's the trustee of the estate. I, You know, Merritt Paulson, the former great owner of the Timbers who is now, you know, persona non grata among fans was supposed to be the big hope to buy the Blazers. Nobody's talking about this. So we should talk about it on this show. He was supposed to be the guy who was going to buy the Blazers and everybody was going to be in favor of it. We're like, that's the second coming of Mark Cuban, all this stuff. Like that's the ultimate byproduct of his mismanagement of the thorns and, you know, the embarrassing, disgraceful handling of the coaching, uh, you know, quietly, pushing the coach away instead of publicly going, hey, this guy's doing some stuff that he shouldn't be doing. Like, that's that's another damaging byproduct of what happened with the Timbers and the Thorns. Like, Merritt Paulson was supposed to be the guy, and he's not anymore. But he told me once upon a time, he said, you know, he was talking about maybe one day wanting to buy the Blazers, and he said, what, you, what people don't understand is Paul has to want to sell you the team. This was when Paul Allen was alive. And Mary Paulson had, on several occasions, gone up to meet with Paul Allen and talked to him about, you know, buying the team. And Merritt Paulson came back and he said, man, he hates you. And I said, okay, now tell me about buying this team. And he said, you know, the thing with a team is they have to want to sell it to you. It's not like buying a house. It's not like buying a car. Dealership, you know, doesn't care who's buying it. Or, you know, you're selling a house, you take the best offer. It's not that way with sports teams. The owner who holds these things, and often there's 28 or 32 of them, it's very scarce uh, inventory. Maybe there's one or two available, one in the NFL, two in Major League Baseball, one in the NBA here. Five years later, another one in the NBA. The owner has to want to sell it to you. Um, and so I think he was doing some legwork early on. But I don't know what Jody Allen, does she move in this world? Does she know who she wants to sell it to? Because... Now Merritt Paulson has been removed as a possibility, and that's the elephant in the room, guys. Like, you know, how disappointing is that, that not only did he mishandle the Thorn situation badly, now he's also not going to be there as a potential owner of the Blazers. So I was always kind of skeptical that he had enough, uh, <laughs> look, I'm ignorant to the numbers. Did Hank and Merritt really have enough money? I, you know, I asked him that one time, and he got a little bit upset. <laughs> and he said, my dad has enough money to buy an NFL team. 
He said that? Yeah. My dad. <laughs> so I think he probably did have the money. <sighs> I just think it's one of the it's one of the things nobody's talking about. Like oh, that was the that was supposed to be the guy who would buy the Blazers. Yeah. He's not, yeah. He's not there anymore. So and you also just know you you know, you included it in what you were going on right there, but Merritt and Paul Allen did get together to talk about yes. this topic? Yeah. Well, more, they just more met. More than once? More than once. They had meetings. But it, I think it was more of Merritt kind of warming up, warming Paul up to himself. Right. Hey, we both own teams. Can we get a meeting? Because, you know, Merritt worked in the NBA front office. He worked for Adam Silver. He worked for David Stern. And so he, he knew the NBA world. And I think, you know, he was really smart to kind of position the Timbers and Thorns franchises in a way that, you know – I think the ultimate plan was that he would buy the Blazers and he would bundle sponsorships and tickets. And you could buy, you know, a season ticket package that would include half tickets to Blazer games and maybe some tickets to some soccer games. And, you know, you he, you know, they were they were printing money over there anyway. So but now that he's removed, I gotta write this at some time. Like I, I think it's one of the one of the things that nobody's talking about. This was supposed to be the guy who was going to buy the Blazers and keep him here. Now we're all looking at Phil Knight going, can he do it? Have you talked to Merritt at all since uh, it all went no. down? No. Uh-uh. Tried to. Tried to. Uh, I think you were there the day that uh, yeah. I was broadcasting from the stadium, and yep. he said he's going to have lots to say and wants to talk, but wasn't there. I invited him on the show. Um, you know, look, I think sometimes I've talked to a lot of other business owners, CEOs, and people who run big businesses. Um, that will tell you, hey, we don't always know what's going on within an organization. We don't know, like, let's say you, let's say you own a bunch of, uh, let's say you're the CEO of a fast food restaurant. You you have 250 locations. You don't know what's going on. You don't know what a manager in Topeka is doing. You don't know, you know, what's, but you have to have an overall culture when something does go wrong to fix it, to own it, to make sure the right things are done, to make sure your employees feel safe to make sure women inside the franchise are respected. And that didn't happen. And that's why he can't own an NBA team now. And that's why, you know, people don't trust him. And, you know, I think people have backed away from him. But I also kind of feel like I'm not with the crowd that wants to run people out of town when you own a business or you've run a company. And let's say, let's just use the Merritt Paulson case. You know, he he horrendously mishandled that, or his staff did, or his management did, horrendously mishandled it. I don't know to what extent what he knew, what he didn't know, but, you know, he deserves the scrutiny that he's getting. I also don't think that this city and this state is better off with somebody like that run out of town. Like, you know, we often will talk about, like, you know, did what I still would love to talk to him and get his side of the story. And find out what did he know, and how does he feel about it now? Aside from all the statements, I would like to have that conversation. I think there's a lot of people out there who would like to hear it, but I think the mob sometimes wants to just run people off and cancel them in a way that isn't fair and isn't right and doesn't serve our state. Our state's not better off with large business owners and people you know who have piles of money uh, you know to invest in putting people to work and buying things and building things to run them off in a way that, you know, is just because, hey, that makes us feel like we're somehow safer. No, what's safer is sunshine. Let's put some sunshine on the thing. Let's find out what really happened. 
Let's hear from you. What are you embarrassed about? What do you, you know, what do you feel wasn't handled correctly? Come on this show and talk about it, for crying out loud. Don't run from it. I guess there's probably litigation out there that, that you know, I, I'm assuming that that's part of the reason why they haven't talked, really. But, you know, it's it was bad. And the Thorns players deserved better, and fans deserved better. And, you know, but I also think, like, this city, the state of Oregon, not better off when you start running people off for making horrendous decisions or mismanaging. Like, wouldn't it be better if there was a comeback to this story that had a good ending to it that everybody felt good about? I'm just saying. Leave it here. You got the BFT. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. That was a good talk in the last segment. It's a good talk. Do I think Merritt Paulson could ever be the owner of the Blazers? No. Do I think he deserves to be run out of town? No. Uh, I I would like to see a comeback story that has a uh, has a good ending, has a happy ending. Am I am I being Pollyanna here, guys? No, I mean it's true. I thought I really liked it. Yeah, and I really liked the tone that you finished the segment with about not running people out of town and uh, and the cancel culture and all that. It's probably notable that Merritt, um, from what I understand, he resigned as CEO of PTFC Timbers and Thorns. But that doesn't, you know, he hasn't sold it yet. He sold a minority stake in PTFC a couple months ago as well. But he has not, you know, sold the team completely. So Peregrine Sports, his ownership LLC, I believe, or the ownership group he has, I think, is still in ownership of PTFC. It's just that Merritt doesn't have day-to-day involvement right now. And also, let's think, let's talk about that. Because that LLC, that's Merritt, sure. But it's a whole bunch of other investors. It, including his father, the former Secretary of Treasury, you know, Hank Paulson. So I, people who are calling for him to, quote-unquote, sell the team, I don't think they quite understand who owns the team. You know, I, I do think it was a good thing for him to step back from operations, day-to-day operations, because he was a distraction and because the tomfoolery happened on his watch, and it can't. You can't stay in that position. If you were a manager, you would have been removed. So I think it's the right thing for him to step back and not be removed. But I kept hearing people say, oh, he should sell, he should sell. The people are standing with signs outside the stadium, he should sell, he should sell. And I'm going, do you not understand how the LLC works? Or like, they're just going to reorganize a new LLC, call it something else, you know, something else LLC. It'll be the same people who own it. It And, you know, we'll all be like, oh, they sold when they really didn't sell. So I think the bigger thing is hold people accountable. Support the teams if you feel like they are doing things that are in alignment with your values. If you're a Blazer fan and you look at the players on the court, the general manager, ownership, management in general, and you go, hey, my values line up with this. Support it. If they don't, then don't support it. But it's to me, it's more like the market won't lie in that respect. It's like a restaurant or anything else. It you know you can stand outside and be like they have to sell the restaurant. No, they don't. They don't really have to sell the restaurant. If you don't like it, don't eat there. If you don't like how they treat their employees, 
don't work there, don't eat there, and tell people about it uh, all you want. But I don't think we should be like in the in the I guess practice of standing outside places going, they must sell. No, they don't have to sell. Like you know, it, they can stay if they want, but maybe no one shows up anymore and they get the message. So. I just I, I really hesitate with when people go, oh, they have to sell. It feels a little bit, you know, I, I think there comes a point like with Daniel Schneider in Washington football team where we all kind of know he's going to have to sell. But I think it's going to be more incumbent because he's run bad business and the market is telling him in a number of ways you ain't going to make it. So you it's in your best interest to sell. Uh, I don't know. Where do you guys line up on the idea of people demanding sports teams be sold? Yeah, we're really quick as a as a society just to say, you know, you need to get out and this is our final decision. We'll be taken. And I'm with you. Like, we're way too quick to that and we shouldn't be able to do it because it's it's not our choice. But at the same time, like you said, of the Daniel Snyder situation, the Donald Sterling situation with the Clippers, like it was obvious that they have to sell the team to, you know, just to you know to survive, to survive. Yeah. yeah who so, was gonna play for the clippers like right. with sterling you exactly know? so like i i agree with you like i don't like the fact that people go out there and they say that people need to quit or sell but at the same time when it when it gets over the top i think it's fairly obvious that that needs to be done the other thing is like when an owner sells you know in snyder's case Seven billion is a hell of a consolation prize. Yes. If this is not somebody getting fired and being shown right. the door and their they and their family suffer, you know, with either minimal or no severance. Like billions of dollars they get for quote unquote, you know, no longer being the owner. Sarver gets paid a lot, Snyder gets paid like you're not gonna get me feeling bad for these guys when there are there's enough, you know, evidence to suggest that they're probably not great people. And that's right. the problem with Merritt for me, because I think he's a good guy, and that's a struggle for me. Because uh, you know, I d- I don't think I agree. Like he shouldn't be run out of town, John. You know him better than I do, but I've had enough personal interactions with the man to to think that he is a good guy. And this this is what makes this whole situation tougher. Whereas, you know, I don't know Sarver and I don't know Snyder and all these other guys, uh, um, but. I think there's enough there to suggest they are not good people. I, I think there's probably a lot. Uh, you know, I I actually think, like, in – I talked to somebody who was a CEO of a company recently, and I talked to him specifically about the idea that, you know, people want to run ownership out of town when something terrible goes wrong with a business. And it's true, like, that correlation or that metaphor that I used earlier, like, you – you know, if you own a, if you're, if you're the, uh, let's just say you're the CEO of McDonald's, you don't know what managers are doing. You don't know what regional managers are doing. You can set a culture for your company, but it, but what you have to do as the owner is, when you become aware that there is a issue that is a big issue that sends a message to the, you know, to the brand of the company and it speaks of the brand of the company, you have to do the right thing. You have to remove that regional manager. You have to be swift about it. You have to be, you know, you have to go in and and fix it. And that's where I think Merritt Paulson got sideways because when he had an owner, uh, excuse me, he had a coach who was doing inappropriate things, um, culturally all the other stuff falls in line with with that, and it's bad news. 
So I think that's where he went sideways. Does he deserve to go to prison for it? No. Does he deserve to uh, take a public hit for it? Yes. Does he deserve the ire of fans and the frustration of players and, and everything that is cascaded down in the last few months? Yep. But should he be run out of town on a, you know, Greyhound bus? No. Like, let's let's see how the story ends. Let's see if there's a comeback that happens here. All right, we're really going to play Punch It Audio coming up. Plus, top of the hour, The Pulse with Judah Newby and Steven. I want you to stay tuned for that as well. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Judah Newby and Steven uh, will be hosting the Pulse in Portland on 750 The Game. If you are interested, and you should be, stick around for that coming up. We're going to play some Punch It Audio. We have the best sound from all around. Let's do it. We interrupt this broadcast with a special announcement from the Bald Face Truth Headquarters. Hey, we're all about truth, justice, and the American way here, okay? Which is why we've spanned the globe and pulled the top audio cuts of the day. You're going to hear little snippets of sound. Hey, it's time for Punch It Audio, presented by First Call Heating and Cooling. Well, there are a lot of markers that tell you when things are going right or things are going wrong. Ken Lavica, a media member in Florida, talking about students who signed up to take, uh, I think it's a bus ride from campus to the season finale against Pitt, University of Miami, Mario Cristobal's first season. Listen to this, punch it. Well, we get in that meeting, right? The boss is coming. He goes, as far as the student section tonight, guys, expect less than 40. Oh my God. <laughs> and, and there were less than 40. Oh, there were, there were less 12. than 40 students there. Tyler Van Dyke was right the entire time. <laughs> Expect Saturday less night. than about 40 kids were not running the buses from campus. None of the kids signed up, and oh, like, they're still on Thanksgiving my. break. There were zero, count them, zero, zero signups for Miami students to get on the bus from campus and to come to the Canes pit game. Zero students. They didn't run a single bus from campus in Coral Gables to Hard Rock Stadium. That is incredible. (laughs) Canes fans, Mario Cristobal, the guy you spent just millions millions of dollars on and a brand new AD Mm. from Clemson with a booster who has millions at his disposal. And the year ends with, count them, Zero students signing up to get on the student bus to go from campus to Hard Rock Stadium. No students on the bus to take the ride. Nobody interested. Apathy. But here's the thing with Mario Cristobal. You know, he came in, he inherited a Miami team that had struggled on the field, added some pieces to it, give the guy some time. We all know he's not a great game manager. He's not Mr. X and O. He's Mr. Jimmy Joe. He will recruit. He will get players. Miami will be better on the field. All will be well. Miami will fix this. I think Mario Cristobal will right the ship. You can uh, tweet at me if you think I'm going to be wrong. U.S. men's national team had a 1-0 win over Iran to advance to the knockout round. Here's Coach talking about it. Greg Berhalter, punch it. Greg, the stakes could not have been higher. You are moving on at a World Cup. How proud are you of your guys? 
gives them their ability to get it done. Proud. I think that, you know, the first half we showed what we can do soccer-wise. Um, played a really good first half. Second half we showed what we can do determination-wise. The guys grinded. They gave every single ounce of energy. And we're undefeated going into the next round. Christian Pulisic has been waiting for his World Cup moment. Yeah. Literally put his body on the line for that goal. Any update on his status and just what he means to this team? No update uh, on his status, but you know I've been saying all along, it, it's a wonderful thing when you're one of your best players is also one of the hardest working. And he there it is, United States advancing. They'll play Netherlands in the knockout round, round of 16 in the World Cup. All right, coming up, you're going to get the pulse. Judah Newby, what do you guys have? Steven, what do you guys have on the show? Talk a little Blazers, talk a little World Cup, talk a little uh, college ball playoff rankings. That's what we'll lead off with. I like that. I like that playoff we're, rankings. We're going to talk about you, too, because we've got right. a lot to unload about oh, you. That's what I, we now do. i got to listen. Yeah. I'll stick around. Now we won't right. be behind your back. You're, you're <laughs> it never is. I just assume. <laughs> I assume that it's happening. Uh, we're back tomorrow on the BFT. with uh, We've got Ross Dellinger of Sports Illustrated on the show. Chase Coburn, Portland State men's basketball coach. Have a good evening, everybody. Grab a podcast. I'll catch you tomorrow.